Warning! The Bone Bad Joe is intended for adults only and contains bad words and other yucky stuff that may make some people very angry. So watch out! What does it take to be part of BJ Shea's Geek Nation? Oh, it's got to be old school sci-fi. No, nah, no, nah, I'm pretty sure it's uh, comic books. You know, you guys are wrong. It is all about the zombies. Pirates! Really? Yar! Find your place in the nation. www.bjgeeknation.com with new episodes on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. The Bone Bat Podcast, where you can listen to Steve and Gord. It's a kick-ass digital broadcast where we've got dick jokes galore. Bone Bat, and you should use that as a drop. Just be like Ultra Class Run. Yeah, Bone Bat Show, Kings and Nerd Podcasting. What? Internet celebrity so tight. Are you ready to meet some fun celebrities? Rolling not with the flow, welcome down to your home. Are you ready to meet some fun celebrities? They are autograph signers, know the famous in mind. Are you ready to meet some fun celebrities? Rolling not with the flow, welcome down to your home. Are you ready to meet some fun celebrities? They are autograph signers, know the famous in mind. Of the midnight, catch a red eye, backtrack, free fly, snag my son guy. You're in death star. Gaped and studded. Maybe I could be a rapper like you one day. Oh, oh, oh. 
Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 85 of the Bone Bat Show. This is Steve. And this is Gord. How's it going, man? Oh, man, it's it's going well. You know, usually when I start the show, I talk about, like, getting my scrotum caught in a Slurpee machine or something. <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to go there this time. I just, this show is all, all film fest. This is a geeky film festy podcast, and we got to just get right to it, because I'm getting psyched. This is our last podcast we do before the actual blessed event. And, man, have we loaded this one up. We've got interviews with all of the directors and there's a shit ton of them of the (laughs) we've got three feature films in the film festival we've got interviews with five count them five directors is that an imperial shit ton what is the i I don't know how you measure directors if they're in like hitchcock's i think that's (laughs) i think that's what you measure them in we have five you're right we have five cubic hitchcock's worth of directors we've got interviews with drew and brett pierce from deadheads Jesse T. Cook from Monster Brawl, and John LaFlamboy and Mike Bradish of The Mole Man at Belmont Avenue. This is going to be just a film-fantastic episode. I hope you enjoy it. In addition to that, last weekend I attended two conventions in Seattle, NorwestCon and SakuraCon, and I have an interview with Ultra Klystron, Kirkland's own anime-flavored nerdcore rap king, And we've got brand new music from him this episode. So all great stuff. I hope you dig on it. You'll dig on it. Hey, can you still get tickets to the film festival? You can indeed. Tickets are on sale now at bonehand.com. Just click on the big shiny red button. And the tickets are now 30 bucks for a full evening of entertainment. A fully packed evening of entertainment. Are we going to have prizes at this event? We're going to have a metric shit ton of prizes. We're going to have 12 Hitchcocks of prizes. Hey, is that how you measure prizes? Because <laughs> I thought I thought Hitchcocks is how you measure directors. Oh, okay. We uh, have 15 Wonkas worth of prizes. Okay, a Wonka is a lot of prizes. <laughs> oh, man. Are we going to be selling t-shirts at this event? Absolutely. The t-shirts, the Bone Bat Film Festival limited edition t-shirts that... You may have seen the lovely Ska Mama Sporting on our Facebook page. Will be available for a mere $15 American at the film festival. And we also have hoodies. Hoodies. Hoodies ho. So there's that. <laughs> that was horribly, horribly unnecessary. You didn't like my little regular show moment there? Your little hoodies ho. No, that was uh, I liked it, so get bent. Pisses me off. (laughs) Does it? What else pisses you off while we're on the subject? You know, here's what pisses me off. Accidentally doing something just inexplicably horrible to your child. That's that's what happens. (laughs) That's what I hate. Dude, my my youngest was was sound asleep the other night and He's, he's kind of a restless sleeper. He, when he sleeps, he's always twitching and grinding his teeth and, and making noise and stuff. That's just how he sleeps. And I was doing the, you know, turn out all the lights, lock up the house, go to bed routine. So I go into his room just to tuck him in or whatever. And he's laying there, kind of grinding his teeth, sound asleep. And I lean in. He's laying on his back. And I lean in real close to just give him a little, you know, peck on the cheek kiss. Good night, just because I love him so much. He's such a cutie. And I lean in real close, and like I'm a millimeter away from actually laying this little peck on his cheek when he suddenly thrashes and rolls his head towards me. This has the effect of essentially catching my bottom lip 
and it sort of sticks to his cheek, and so he's rolling my whole open mouth across his <laughs> eyes and the bridge of his nose real fast. Like a pizza, <laughs> like a pizza dough on a rolling pin kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. It's like suddenly, you know, went from to... Oh, and just like snaked a, a trail of, of dad's spit across half of his face, and he kind of wakes up and is like, what? Why? <laughs> what are you doing to me? Like, oh, God, I hope you have no memory of this, child. It's just waking up and your dad is, like, gumming your face, huh? spitting on you. That was terrible. Wow, dude. Well. <laughs> what about you? You know anything horrifying to your children lately? No, not to my children, but I've got a serious fucking gripe. So a couple of weeks ago, the computer starts, like, getting sluggish booting up. Like, it would start to kind of get going and it would freeze and then it would get going again, and then it would go into that, like, Windows safe mode. Uh, and so I, I tracked it down to one of my two memory sticks crapped out, which that's an easy fix. Memory's not too expensive these yeah, days. Yeah, I can even fix that. Right. So I run down to Fry's, and I pick up a memory stick. And while I'm there, I'm looking around, and my uh, DVD drive had also been kind of crapping out. And I knew, you know, I was going to have to do some consolidation of shorts for the film fest and stuff and i wanted to have a good dvd drive for that so i decided well you know maybe now's a good time to upgrade to a blu-ray drive for the computer so i pick one out they're reasonably priced and i come home install it everything works like a charm until i put a blu-ray in it but you can't play a blu-ray in a blu-ray player you, you would think you could because it's called that shit <laughs> so I, I put in disc one and game of thrones check it out because I got a good price on that at Target. It was pretty sweet. And fired up. It says, this drive cannot read this disc because your monitor is not HDCP compliant. So I look it up on the internet, and it turns out that there's like this bullshit Sony racket that they've got going on. That even though I have a DVI monitor, a nice monitor, that can easily handle any resolution that a Blu-ray would dish out, that monitor company hasn't paid Sony or whatever. So oh. unless I buy a certain adapter, like an expensive HDMI adapter, to jump through hoops to get from the computer to the monitor, which is already working fine, or pay a license fee by buying a $70 a year piece of software, I can't watch Blu-rays that I've bought on the Blu-ray player that I've bought. Oh, my God. Which steal your movies, people. This to is insane. Total bullshit. Yeah. I understand copy protection. Here on the Bone Bat Show, we always tell you guys, you know, do the right thing, pay for independent music, support these artists. We want them to be around. But this bullshit of having to pay more money for stuff that I own infuriates me. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, and we do. We we support independent filmmakers. We are not pro piracy, but we just did a, what pisses me off about how it's such a pain to actually watch movies legally. It's not a question of money. It's a question of it just being a pain in the ass. They make it an unpleasant customer experience. Ah, I tell you, I feel your pain. Yeah, so I'm, I'm absolutely pissed off about the Blu-ray thing because I, I shouldn't have bought that drive. And I will tell you, listeners, if you're considering upgrading to a Blu-ray drive in your computer... Don't freaking bother because it is a pain in the ass. You won't be able to play shit. And most of the software, because they're constantly changing the copy protection on Blu-rays, 
the software, you have to pay for a license to update that software. Because, sure, it might work on the disks you have now, but it won't work on the disks that come out down the road. So, again, it's another one of those deals where somebody is tapping you in the ass for money ad infinitum. Ugh. Uh, can you take the Blu-ray movie and just use software to convert it to something that you play off a solid state drive there may be there, there may be things like that like maybe there's a program called any dvd that does exactly that but <laughs> isn't that circumventing the system that you're trying to fucking support yeah it's that's a pain oh. you actually have all the stuff you've legally bought and you still have to resort to a workaround to make it work yeah so anyway I hate you sony let's listen to a tune this is Ultra Klystron from his brand new album, Animatic. Just came out last week. This tune is Oh No Go Go. But my amenities appear heavenly. It's 
the matter until the day, uh, for me, Kusaki G, only fits above, none on top of me, still anonymous, so I don't forgive, only way to live is impossibly. Oh no, I'm off the chain again, I'm no way to say it again, I'm here to bring the pain again, go, go, speed off and tell your bros, space station is a man, yeah, I'm double cellophones, oh no, I'm off the chain again, I'm no way to say it again, I'm here to bring the pain again, go, go, So enlightened like said, I'm the boss Just on the floor, I'm knocking them off Just still my essence with the walking sauce Nation fall cold, black in the sky Foes of ether, without a breather Baruch assaulted because it's either Verbal return, but not a cheater Not staying full today, a complete star Ride flows, it's fit, all doo-doo Never cry, you won't catch me, QQ In the groove while you need blues, blues Bottom of my bird break cuckoo Got my dope clothes in an iPhone game Just staying I'm insane in the membrane Fit once and claim that I've been shamed No ink you should just pin me Oh no I'm off the chain again I'm going insane again I'm here to bring the pain again Go, go Speed off and tell your bros Face station is a man Yeah, I'm double cellophones Oh no I'm off the chain again I'm going insane again I'm here to bring the pain again Go, go Thomas Cook from the film Monster Brawl, and you're listening to The Bone Bat Show. They've been out there for centuries, lurking in the shadows, rotting in our stories and myths, and buried in our nightmares. For the time will come when monsters will shape the fortunes of all. Good evening, monster fans in Canada, Newfoundland, and the United States of America. Dave Foley, Art Hindle, Robert Maillet, Kevin Nash, Jimmy Hart, Herb Dean, Jason Brown, featuring Cyclops, The Mummy, Lady Vampire, Zombie Man, Witch Bitch. Swamp Gut, Werewolf, Frankenstein. Eight legendary monsters from around the world summoned to the ring to determine the most powerful monster of all time. I'm gonna be late for the monster brawl! It's the ultimate fight of the living dead. He's gotta throw everything at this fat son of a bitch! Monster Brawl. Anyone who watches Monster Brawl is going home in a body bag. All right, I am back. And right now, I am so fortunate to be able to chat for a few minutes with the director of Monster Brawl, Jesse T. Cook. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining us. I have to say, when you're putting together a film festival, you look at a lot of movies. 
and there's a lot of things you see and you're like, well, this one might fit. This one might not fit. I'm not really sure. The moment we saw the trailer for Monster Brawl, it was like, oh, shit, game on. We've got to get this film. And we were so glad that you and Image Entertainment were able to make it happen, man. Yeah, well, we kind of made the film to be a crowd-pleasing, almost interactive experience uh, that would play well in uh, in a theater uh, with, a, with a live audience. Um, there's there's no audience in the actual film, so it, it's really great to show it uh, in front of a rowdy crowd who can cheer on uh, their monsters. Well, I definitely think we can provide that. It's such a great concept, the idea of monsters battling. How did you come up with that? The idea almost just dawned on me one day. Um, I've always been a fan of 80s wrestling, 80s horror films, two big subcultures from growing up. And always having the conversation of who would win in a fight um, and picking anyone really in the horror realm. So eventually we just came to the idea of doing this tournament style movie with all our favorite monsters. Um, the wrestling format uh, lends itself the best. At one point it was going to be more MMA type fighting, but because there's kind of a crossover with wrestling and horror in terms of the fans and the, and the, the fan base, it was a natural fit. So. Oh, and absolutely. You were able to secure the talents of folks like Kevin Nash and Jimmy Hart, and it all just feels really authentic within the wrestling realm. Yeah, it was important for us to have uh, some of those familiar faces from wrestling, uh, even Herb Dean from MMA, who's uh, the UFC ref. We, we wanted to, to reach out to uh, the cult followings of the fighting and wrestling worlds, and Jimmy and Kevin and even Robert were, were kind of there during the heyday. Jimmy, in particular, is a familiar face that uh, we were really excited to land. Actually, mentioning Herb Dean, he kind of steals his scenes, man. He's great in the film. <laughs> yeah, uh, Herb came out. We only had him for one day, so we had to do a lot with him. And, yeah, we kind of set it up like it's this. there's rules to this tournament, and, of course, that'll all get thrown out the window uh, after Herb's scenes. Absolutely. So this is exactly the kind of film that we like to champion because it's truly an independent production. I mean, you and your crew did the financing on it. You pulled all the money together. You wrote it. You directed it. You shot the film yourself. What kind of challenges did you face making this film a reality? Oh, endless challenges. Um, we always joke that it's taken a decade off of our lives. We were all working odd jobs, getting the financing going, and spent about a year raising money locally, almost going door to door essentially in our hometown and finally pieced it all together and then, yeah, you're absolutely right, we did everything from the casting to the even the producers were, were, were the chefs, so everyone held multiple hats it was a very small crew uh, mostly friends from high school helping out and uh, it was just a surreal experience to be able to, we're all 30 years old now, so to go back to our hometown in the summer um, with all these wrestling and horror icons with all our friends, it was, it was a dream come true. That's very cool. Speaking of the horror icons, one of the things I love about this film is the creature design. I mean, you know, we've all grown up with these monsters. I've mentioned in another interview recently, you know, I, I built Aurora models in eight count Chocula since I was a little guy. So I love these characters. And you added such a nice, fresh spin on monsters we know and love, especially characters like Witch Bitch, uh, Swamp Gut, I absolutely love. Yeah, that was the most rewarding part, I think, in the whole process was deciding who was going to make the, the final cut. And, and we had lists, lists of 
mythological monsters to uh, anything you can really think of. And a lot of it came down to logistics and we wanted a couple female monsters. Witch Bitch is kind of a given because her name is so absurd. But uh, she was given that name just because of the whole wrestling thing, that wrestlers have just weird names like Zombie Man and Swamp Gut and Witch Bitch. These aren't actual monsters, of course. They're just their wrestling names. Witch Bitch was a fan favorite at the festivals we've done already, and so was Swamp Gut. Swamp Gut was kind of a horrid hybrid of every uh, swamp creature throughout the past, whether it's Toxic Avenger, to Swamp Thing, Creature from the Black Lagoon. So we wanted a, a swamp demon uh, represented in the monsters, but also uh, like thinking of wrestlers like Andre the Giant and King Kong Bundy, these kind of obese, uh, burly wrestlers, which fits a certain typecast of wrestler that uh, we wanted to put in. So who did your uh, makeup and your effects? There's a lot of great gore, and the costumes are outstanding. Who did that work? Two brothers that we've worked with in the past called the Gore Brothers, uh, and they're just like us. They're just essentially fans of horror movies, and we, uh, we shot a, a small film with them a few years ago. And then we approached them with this idea, and they kind of thought we were nuts because we had several monsters outfits with a very tiny budget. But uh, they're very resourceful and had a lot of great ideas, and, and they did it all. I mean, every different day they were doing up different monsters. So they're part of our team now, and uh, we'll continue to work with them. Additionally, another thing that I think really sells the movie is the graphic design bits. Like, every monster has his own freaking logo. And the backstory videos that you play before each match are brilliant, even down to the level of the mummy when he speaks. He has hieroglyphic subtitles. I mean, that is just the shit. <laughs> Who did the graphic design for you guys? Yeah, uh, the hieroglyphs were just added in almost the last day before the movie was done. They went over really well uh, at the premiere. But, yeah, the graphic design thing, we wanted uh, – we worked with a local uh, – graphic design company, uh, Justin Erickson, who works for Rumorg Magazine. He's a brilliant designer. Oh, sure, yeah. And he, uh, when we first met him, we kind of showed him how the UFC will do their tale of the tapes and their fighter breakdowns and the WrestleMania stuff, uh, and just adding kind of a gothic or uh, kind of rotting edge to it so that it's not these pristine graphics or they're actually just what the telecast within the movie could manage to do. But yeah, throwing in all those little details rounds it out uh, to set up the fights. And uh, yeah, we were fortunate enough to find Justin, and he did a fabulous job. The backstories, like you mentioned, were there all along. We wanted to give people just a quick glimpse to break up the actions uh, in the ring and in the graveyard. And also because sometimes in uh, wrestling shows, you'll, you'll see a little storyline develop uh, outside of the ring before it gets to a fight. Sure, yeah. In addition to, you've got these monsters, you've got a great setup, you've got the great graphic design, but what really brings just kind of home the humanity of it is the repartee between Dave Foley and Art Hindle. It, it is just so much fun to hear those two kibitz with each other throughout the film. What was it like to work with them? Oh, it was great. We really were careful on casting those roles because they were going to anchor the whole movie. Dave, obviously being a comedian from Kids in the Hall, uh, up in Canada, we have uh, Hockey Night in Canada, and uh, there's Ron McLean and Don Cherry. And so I told them to, to play that shtick where Dave Foley would play it straight and Art would be this abrasive, kind of obnoxious color commentator. 
Art, of course, is kind of a Canadian B-movie legend working with Cronenberg and uh, several films in the 80s, Porky's, The Brood, Black Christmas. And the nice thing was uh, both of those gentlemen lived in our hometown for a time in the early 80s. It's oh, wow. a small town of 10,000 10, people. Okay. Foley grew up there while Hindle lived there. So it was kind of nice to, to reunite these guys and bring them back to their roots. Um, Dave came in from L.A. Art lives in Toronto. And we filmed about two hours north of Toronto, so it was good to for them to come back to where uh, to where they'd grown up, and it was like a, a little reunion for all of us. Their performance is just hilarious. I think that our listeners are going to love seeing this movie because it really is kind of the cherry on top of the film. <laughs> now, the secret weapon, though, if I was going to say that the film has a secret weapon, I got to say it's the narrator, Lance Henriksen, man. He does a great job in the film, and he just kind of gives the whole thing an air of class, which is really cool. Yeah, that was a coup for us because uh, we knew Lance was coming to the Comic-Con in Toronto and he did us a big favor. And yeah, initially it started out as just this voice of God, this kind of Mortal Kombat style <laughs> narrator. I mean, we, we have our announcers, of course, but just something above that that would like introduce the spectacle of it all. And, and the, the actual like Mortal Kombat finishing move lines that he says, those were added in at the very end as an added touch. But yeah, Lance was fantastic. He came out to the premiere in Toronto. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, yeah, just having someone who's, you know, been in a hundred different horror films was great to satisfy the, the genre audience and, and a dream to work with him. Also, I think another one to mention would be the guy who plays Frankenstein, who was also a wrestler named Kurgan. His name is Robert Maillet. He got his big break in the movie 300. He was oh, a okay. huge uber immortal that Gerard Butler fights, and he just uh, was in Sherlock Holmes fighting Robert Downey Jr. And he's uh, he's like a mild-mannered French-Canadian giant and just uh, a class act. And he, uh, I really thought the humanity uh, in the movie was in his role with his uh, his creator character. Absolutely. So the film at the end absolutely leaves you wanting more. Will there be a Monster Brawl 2? We have a sequel written, but there's a company in L.A. who are looking at doing a remake. So I'm not sure what fans will think of that. But for us, it's kind of a thing where we'd love to see it done really big because it's kind of such a high-concept idea sure. that uh, I don't necessarily think they would remake the actual movie we've done. They would just spin it off in a whole new direction. But uh, if that were not to happen, we definitely have a sequel uh, standing by to do it with a slightly bigger budget. And uh, just expanding, obviously, from the ending. In wrestling, there's different... You have your bad guy camp and your good guy camp, so it would be more like that, with, with uh, more like a Royal Rumble of monsters, I would imagine. <laughs> just oh, ramping up the fights and the stunts. That would be great. All right, so in the meantime, though, Jesse, what are you working on next? We have three movies uh, we're shooting this year. In fact, we, we go to the on the first one on May 4th. We also did a, uh, a Civil War zombie film right after Monster Brawl. It's coming out uh, in June no this year called Exit Humanity, and it had uh, Bill Mosley and Brian Cox and Dee Wallace in it. It's kind of a more of a slower-paced uh, zombie drama. But, yeah, the three films on the go this year. we got a sci-fi film. We have uh, kind of an Ed Wood type of dark comedy 
And yeah, we're shooting in May and, and July, so we're, we're keeping busy. Fantastic. Well, I'm absolutely looking forward to your future efforts, man. Once again, thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. You know, no Bone Bass Show interview would be complete without the question, Jesse, what pisses you off? <laughs> a couple things. First of all, I would say p- people who uh, who kind of question our use of the, the word Frankenstein in the movie and why that should be the monster's creator and not the monster. And they kind of mention it as though we don't know that. <laughs> Of course we know that, but like films like Monster Squad and the, the Hammer Frankenstein movies, uh, we want to be accessible to everyone and f- to be politically correct and call the doctor Frankenstein. I don't know. That just drives me nuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the other thing is there. people who will pirate the movie and then go online and talk shit. I just can't stand that. <laughs> anyway, those are just small things. <laughs> so, the, speaking of that, actually, uh, Monster Brawl is currently available in Canada on Blu-ray, correct? Is there a release date yeah. in the States yet? Uh, yes, June 12th. Very nice. So, come and see it on the big screen at the Bone Bat Film Festival, and then pick up a copy for yourself in June. All right, man. Well, I just wanted to thank you once again so much for being part of our film festival and for spending a few moments with us here on the Bone Bat Show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone has a good time over at the screening. All right, we are back. That tune, of course, was Oh No Go Go from Animatic by Ultra Kleistron. Following that, we had our interview with Jesse T. Cook, director of Monster Brawl. Thank you so much, Jesse. Yeah, thanks, man. So, dude. Dude. Didn't we just do a show with, like, two hours of political ranting? I can't imagine you have anything to rant about this week. Uh, The only way I have anything to rant about this week is I had to lean back to the right. (laughs) Because <laughs> I've been leaning pretty far to the left. I've been hanging left. I, I got to lean to the right now. I want to do a Mitt Romney anti-rant. Okay. Not an anti-Mitt Romney rant. The other way around. People are complaining about the man. And they're saying a lot of stuff that I just plain don't give a shit about. First and foremost, his latest misstep was revealing that he was building a house that has a garage that's so big it requires an elevator for the cars. Or So, so what? So what? Mitt Romney is rich. Good. I'm glad he's rich. I don't care his house has a car elevator. He's building a house on the side of a hill in California, and to me that shows some rather piss-poor judgment because we have earthquakes and wildfires and mudslides, which routinely take houses off the sides of hills and turn them into deposits of debris at the bottom of hills. But (laughs) he's wealthy. Okay, I don't care. Great. Super. Good for him. So what? Item two. Mitt Romney is a Mormon. He is a Mormon, right? I've heard that. Okay, yeah. So I don't care. We had a president that was a Catholic, and that worked out. And as long as the guy puts the needs of the country before the desires of his church, then we're cool. It doesn't bother me that he's a Mormon. That Santorum clown, now, he explicitly said that he would put God's law before the law of man. And so fuck that guy. I don't like his version of God. That guy's God is a dick. So, You know what? The one thing that actually doesn't bug me at all is that whole dog riding on the roof of his car thing when he was coming home from college (laughs) that everybody is bent the fuck out of shape about. Who didn't do dumb shit when they were a kid? Yeah, definitely. I mean, putting putting your dog in a crate on top of your station wagon and driving it for four hours. 
people do dumber shit than that every day. That does not at all disqualify the man as being president to me. But, but people are putting that out there like, oh, fuck that guy. What else do I not care about? Oh, the, the little thing where he said, I like to fire people. No, that was taken out of context. He likes having the ability to ditch poorly performing vendors. And you know what? I agree. I like having the ability to fire people, too, if those people are taking my money and doing a bad job. If you could fire the DMV and use a better car registry company, wouldn't you? That doesn't necessarily, you know, disclaimer, every experience I've had with the DMV here locally has been a good one. The Davis DMV office is just stock full of awesomeness. So, but every other DMV sucks. And (laughs) speaking, speaking of Davis, where I live, we have a UC here. And you know what? This clown Santorum who just dropped out of the race. He said, I've got to call him out on this, even though he's no longer in the race. He's still going to be lurking like as a Fox News commentator or something. He said, you can't take U.S. history at the California UCs, at the UCs or the state schools. He said that. Let me tell you, I've gone to Davis and I've taken a U.S. history class. You can major in history. You can take history classes every damn UC there is, except for one, and that's the medical school. So, man. Santorum. So did his handlers fuck up or like what did he miss here to say that? Did he even try to defend it? No, he didn't. He just says stuff. Well, but that's the thing. Was that Romney who said the Etch-a-Sketch deal? That yeah, Romney's that people Romney. said that basically once the primary's over and it's the real fight begins, then you can just reset all of your positions. Yeah, but what he was trying to say is that And he did it poorly, but what he was trying... God, I'm really defending Romney. I'm probably going to vote against him, but he was trying to say that once the primary is over, you do sort of start over again. You say, all right, I'm no longer trying to fight against other Republicans. Now I'm trying to fight against the Democrats. That's all he was trying to say. He said it poorly. Yeah, but you... So you don't believe that politicians change their positions in order to court different groups of people? I absolutely think that happens. I think they stake out a fairly defined set of positions and they they just talk about them differently depending on who they're talking to. Yeah. And they do they do flip-flop from time to time, but it depends on the politician, I suppose, and how much money's coming his way from what special interest group. Yeah. But there you go. There's my disorganized half-assed political rant for the week. Let's listen to something I like to think about more. This is another tune from Ultra Kleistron from the 2007 CD Romance Language, uh, one of my favorite things. Girls with glasses. Can't even defend his odd taste and his annoying habits And his backpack in the shape of a cabbage That's a cat rabbit for those not in the know And they also have dims which can easily go And they turn into spaceships with super fast transport well, That doesn't involve me for the fact I can't ask What I remember of the opposite sex on a date Cause when I ask a girl, I like dead as hate They come and make an etchy and a reprobate But that is no critter and that is my fate So I retreat to the figurines from my machines Fire up the DVD with mechagonical scenes And then write a review and send it over the tube To be read by precious few who are basically noobs Another
about a snap like collectors of the dudes on the net. Complaining about weight though themselves to set. It's not logical to me, it's about an elect. And morality too good that it's hard to detect. Until you start a conversation and begin to relate. But the best strategy can be quite a debate. And I have a little advice about how to approach this. Cause every girl I've dated made the first move so this. And she's like, and it's, it's not a good choice. When it comes to looking for a reasonable voice about how to get these shoulders with the ant in a hand. For me, it's just unlocking the occasional prayer. And I'm sure for me to say that it's a play in that. Though I can say it's okay to be so scholastic. Girls love nerds too, and I say that it's proof. Just be yourself first and just keep a loop. Kills when there's someone to defend, so he's the kind of guy on which you can depend. But you get slated so like the same as an anime slash dojin's your game. But take to that when you're feeling down, just be your own person and never the clown. This is Steve from the Bone Bash Show here at uh, SakuraCon 2012, and you know it, it doesn't seem right that I could experience my first SakuraCon without speaking with the preeminent purveyor of anime-flavored nerdcore, Carl Olson, Ultra Kleistron himself. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. This weekend has been insane. It's been cray to uh, <laughs> borrow words from Jay Z and Kanye West. <laughs> I bumped into you at NorwestCon. I mean, you've been, like, working these two cons like two turntables. It's been pretty crazy. Yeah, no, it's been really intense to do two cons in one weekend. Uh, like I said, I've done, I think, I one back in 2007 or 2006, all in a row I had Anime Evolution in Vancouver, I had PAX in Seattle, and I had KomoriCon in Portland all back-to-back. And that was ridiculous. Like, that, that felt like a death march. Because at each con, I kind of was wearing a different hat. So I couldn't even kind of get into a given mode. It's like, no, this is this thing, this is this thing, this is this other thing. It was intense. It was just plainly intense. But two in one weekend has been surreal. Just plainly surreal. But a lot of fun. Because it's like, any possible nerd friend I have in the greater Pacific Northwest, I have probably already seen this weekend with maybe a few exceptions. Very nice, very nice. Well, for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, obviously, nerdcore is a fairly young genre. Yeah. And you have the leading lights of MC Chris, MC Front a lot, but yeah. you don't go down the timeline too far until you bump into Ultra Kleistron. So, when and why did you first pick up the mic? Well, I had always, like, really enjoyed hip-hop. Sort of in the same summer, I picked up Bex Odelay, which is very hip-hop inspired, but it, because the subject matter doesn't do anything related to normal hip-hop, is a little bit more accessible. Um, but I also picked up the Fuji's score, which is very much a straight-up hip-hop classic, and I absolutely love that record. And uh, sort of in the same time frame, like I'd always listen to the local hip-hop radio stations, so like I'd get, you know, get my daily doses of Tupac and Biggie and, and Snoop Dogg, and you know, uh, I had the Skilo single, I had the uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony single. So I'd always loved hip-hop, but I never felt like I could really comfortably have a voice in it. 
And then in a very short time frame, I heard MC Frontalot's collaboration with Compressor because I was already doing electronic music. And in the electronic online electronic music scene, everybody loved Compressor because it's such a brilliant satire of industrial music. So I'd heard that collab, and I'm like, well, that's kind of neat. And some listen to the rest of Front stuff. I heard MC Chris's record in the same time frame, and I heard MC Hawking in the same time frame. And between those three, with a lot on sort of, uh, I will freely admit, Front and Chris, because with MC Hawking's like, well, okay, well, that's obviously a parody act. Whereas there, there was a bit... Front and Chris weren't strictly parody. They were just people who were rapping about what they knew. Right. And I realized, sure. like, okay, is... It's totally fine for me to rap as long as I stick to what I know. And that, you know, at that time especially, Nerdcore hit right when I really got into anime. When it went from, I enjoy watching shows on Toonami to, oh my god, all the money I used to be putting into buying CDs is now going into DVDs and manga. And I'm going to cons all the time now and, and all that. And it shows in that record, the first record, that like, yeah, this is the convergence of two influences. Loving hip-hop and Nerdcore and being a gigantic otaku. (laughs) (laughs) Now, a question about that. Now, you also have done, from early on, you said you worked in doing some electronic music. Yeah. You also done a lot of production. Yeah. And in addition to being a musician, is it sort of an occupational hazard that you're constantly wanting to, like, remix your own stuff? Well, especially for the first album, there was stuff that ostensibly other people were supposed to jump on and make the beat for out of the electronic music community that I hung out in and it didn't happen except for a couple of songs so when I was first getting doing the remixes it was sort of a side effect of well I figure ultimately this is going to go under another beat but I'll kind of show the people who I'd like to work on this to work with because Nerdcore was supposed to be this side project I kind of did with some friends and it kind of became something that consumed everything else I was doing Mm -hmm. especially because all right. I'll do 50 copies of this first Nerdcore record and I'll have them forever. And within a fairly short period, I had to get another much more professional run of it done just because all of my friends are like, this is brilliant and bought it. And people online are like, this is brilliant and bought it. And it just, it went way faster than I thought. It was a weird experience, but definitely because I can produce my own stuff, it's very easy for me to do these remixes. Whereas other people struggle with production. I went into Nerdcore having already been recording my own music since age 12 and had already learned where a lot of the mistakes were and where a lot of the problems were and anything that I couldn't naturally pick up I read and tried to proactively learn mm. and I think a lot of people their first Nurka record is rough because they're also that's their first anything I had already released a ton of electronic music and drum and bass and house and trance and minimal techno and ambient before anything was really released as an album online I'd leak little bits to my friends in the electronic music scene but those were virtually lost until I put out this collection of rough demos a while back. Mm. So, now you've just released, I believe, your sixth album, Animatic. Yeah, that's my sixth Nerdcore album for sure, and uh, it shows that I didn't do an album for three years because it's 22 songs long for the regular version, and then it's going to be the uh, deluxe download has a bunch of remixes and, al- and alternate takes because there's some of this stuff where it flows entirely differently without the guest shot. And so, like, random jumps on one of the songs on my record. He does this amazing 28 bar verse. But to end the song, you kind of have to end it on a different note after that kind of his emotion. Mm-hmm. So the, there's an alternate version that's very similar, but it drops his bit and it ends on a very different note. I love the fact with stuff like Bandcamp, I can just put out every idea I have with zero editorial, which would be, I think, really unprofessional, except it's like, I know you're only going to put certain songs on an iPod anyways. It's not like you have to sit down and listen to it. The whole point is just so that you can build what you want out of it. Because that's what I do with any album anyways, right? Sure. 
So, yeah, I've kind of noticed that actually your career, you, it's a little bit like a snake feeding. 2007, big creative output. 2009, big creative output. Then a couple years, 2011, big creative output. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, tw- 2012 is going to be insane because I've got, I already dropped my record. Rise got her album coming out. If it's not in time for Fanime at the end of May, it will be in time for Anime Expo at the beginning of July. We are five songs away from having all the principal vocal recording done on Nurse Hella's debut record, and I'm producing some percentage of that, though we're also going to have people out of the uh, Halifax uh, hip-hop scene producing stuff, and we're obviously going to have tracks from Bad Spella. He'll produce the back, and I may end up doing Final Mix. We'll sort of see. Bad Spella is so busy because he is a new dad, <laughs> and it was wonderful. Nurse Hella and I had coffee with him a, co- a few weeks back, and it was just, it's just sort of, it was great to see him, but you, you just realize it's like, whoa, he is crazy busy <laughs> so as much as we I, I mean I'd, I'd personally love to hear him produce the entirety of Nurcella's first album it's just logistically I'm not sure if we're reasonable at this point right right <laughs> well talk a little bit about Emerald Empire now I, I know we know a lot of the players but how did this come together I wasn't in the principal it's, it's sort of I came down one time and it was sort of well this is a, this is something we're thinking about at Cypher Night and by the next time they're like okay so this is what we do this is how it all comes together and basically what it boiled down to is there was sort of the recognition that myself and Cloth and Pop and Death Star and Billy and Sketch and the Medic and I, we all knew each other we're all friends we all respect each other's work deeply there's stuff that all of those artists can do that I simply ha- can't tap or haven't tapped yet and I respect them for having already found these amazing angles and ideas and uh, approaches to the genre and they're great people they like they could be the worst musicians in the world I still love them but they're <laughs> great musicians too on top of it all the, all of them and we realize we're playing shows all the time anyways we might as well sort of take this as some something a bit more directly organized in that kind of Wu-Tang Clan odd future sense at least in, in as much as we're all working together we might as well try and use that organizational power in a direct fashion as opposed to, you know, Facebook messaging everybody, oh, can one of can one of you come down and fill in a bill or two of you come down and fill in a bill? No, just have a spot for that and then use that for all the collaborative projects we, we always kick around. Whenever we hang out at the Cypher Nights, we're like, oh, we should do a song about this and we should do a song about that. And we're all taking kind of notes sometimes about that. But this is makes it, yeah, we're going to do songs about that together because we're going to do a collaborative album together as the group with everybody doing certain roles and that will be great because we're going to take it very seriously because I think we're all pretty like-minded we all really want to see quality output we love hip-hop first and foremost in as as much as we like the nerdy aspects we can code it in so we really do care about mic technique and the ability to flow and production variation production quality having all those technical aspects on lock so it's, it's great because it's a bunch of very like-minded individuals now who almost accidentally all come together to, I think, create great music. And there's something from a fan standpoint. Last night seeing Death Star playing a room party. That was and amazing. with Klopp and Pop standing there and they're name-checking you in Bounce and you're yeah. like standing there. I mean, that was just awesome. Yeah, no, that room party was unbelievable, to put it mildly. Just last night at NorwestCon was really fantastic. I hung out with people who just normally I would never have a chance to hang out with at a con just because of who they would put me on at panels. Like, I hadn't met you before, but suddenly, I've, you know, I've met you and you got the CD. I met Reverend El Fuego and it's like, 
I've listened to, you know, obviously I lived in Seattle. I, I listened to all the different radio shows around here, so I was familiar. But to hear, like, he's playing magic in the radio lounge is just amazing. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, the beautiful visual and just so uh, quintessentially nerdy. But it's not necessarily the nerdy that I am, but it's still great to interact with that and make those connections. They did this weird thing where my autograph session was before my show, well before my show. So I was sitting next to this sci-fi author, and we just chatted about computer programming for an hour. And it's just not a connection I think I could have made even at a con like SakuraCon, where I've got a lot of connections here. I've got friends in the industry here. I've got friends in the press here. And I've got countless, countless, countless cosplayer friends. It's fantastic. This is like coming home to like a second family or a third family, because I guess I'll call the Emerald Empire will be family number two. <laughs> My actual families will be family one. And cons will be family three. But it was just sort of... I didn't expect to make so much in the way of connections, and it was it was great. But then to amp that up with a fantastic show, I wasn't quite sure if the room was reading me, but then I'm done with my set, and people are just rushing up to buy stuff and say how cool stuff is, and they're asking, oh, is this song from your set on there? I'm like, yes, it is. And just that level of interest and passion. And then to see Death Star just tear apart that room party. <laughs> and the just even if Death Star hadn't performed, that was, again, another whole segment of the nerd culture I hadn't taken in before. So it was just to be able to, to imbibe that and enjoy it and see it was fantastic. To sort of immerse yourself. Yeah, it's, it's an immersion sort of <laughs> shock therapy almost. But it's great because it underpins something that sometimes I know I have trouble capturing just because of the narratives of some of my nerdiness where it's like I know comp size stuff, I know internet meme type stuff, and I know obviously anime and manga and that, I know animation. And it's to catch that whole other side of it and those other personalities in this broad, broad sort of subculture of the greater world. It was just really neat. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I was glad I was there to experience it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, really, no Bone Bass Show interview would be complete without the question. Yeah. Carl, what pisses you off? Uh, waiting four hours in a line, <laughs> which I had to do here at SakuraCon because I was a chump and decided I'm only here for like a day and a half. I won't get a press badge. It'd be intellectually dishonest, <laughs> even though I'm probably going to write about my weekend for the Toon Zone blog anyways. But I figured there's no way the line could be four hours. And the only thing that made it even part way tolerable is about halfway through waiting for this line, they kind of rearranged the order. And instead of being around a bunch of people who were being sort of not that sociable and pretty quiet I was sitting next to uh, a couple cosplayers one who was doing a amazing Yoko Littner from Gurren Lagan, and the other one was doing uh, Simone from Gurren Lagan, and they're really sweet people they were totally into British sci-fi as well which I just love that kind of cross-pollination of fandom because sure. that's totally that's my roots like I grew up on British sci-fi and Star Trek and Star Wars and, and Blake 7 and, and all that kind of stuff like that's what I grew up with in the household from my mom and my dad so to see that that same sort of thing where it's like you've got clearly passionate anime fans because they're doing really well-made cosplays that really fit them of these characters, but at the same time they're like, man, I can't wait to get out of this line to get the BBC meetup. I want to take a photo with the Stig, and then I'm thinking, like, that is the most radical photo ever. So I say, I hate waiting in line around boring people. I don't mind it around cool people. It's all about finding that silver lining. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Right, man. Well, tell our listeners where they can find your stuff. Um, you can find my stuff at carlrolson.com. That's K-A-R-L-R-O-L-S-O-N.com. You can also Google Ultra Klystron, and it will bring up my Bandcamp page. Hopefully, they just post a link because that is a alphabet soup that made a lot more sense when I made drum and bass and minimal techno and is very bad as an MC, other than I can r rhyme it with ice on 
and uh, I can say I'm pimp like Heidi Fleissson, <laughs> but I mean, so it's, it's, it's awkward. It's not a great rapper name, I will concede. But yeah, the best thing is to go to the .com. There's links on links on links there. And may I recommend Taste Test, which yes. is currently available on Bandcamp, yes. kind of your greatest hit. Yeah, and if you just free. go to carlrolson.com slash free, and it's got links to... Actually, it's hilarious. I haven't bothered to update the page in a bit, so there's a mega upload link right there. So <laughs> let it be known, yours totally legit uses for mega upload because I put my own music up there voluntarily for free so people can get it for free, and you ruined that. That was so convenient for me. Thanks, Robin. Oh. <laughs> Man. That's what I'm mad about. That's what I'm mad about. Closing a site that, yes, had incredibly illegitimate uses, but for me was incredibly legitimately useful <laughs> for my own band promotion. You have made it harder for me to make money. You've stunted the recovery. You've stunted the recovery. <laughs> there you have it. All right, man. Well, what would you like to listen to next? I would like to listen to Work It Baby off my uh, new album, Animatic, because it sounds like a Beck song. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. It was a pleasure speaking with it you, Carl. It was absolutely lovely speaking with you. It's an honor to be on the Bone Bat Show. You guys are the kings of nerd podcasting, <laughs> and you should use that as a drop. Just be like, Ultra Class Run. Yeah, Bone Bat Show, kings of nerd podcasting. What? Oh, dude, that was awesome. <laughs> Perfect baby, any style rock this perfect lady. Hands been around like a circuit baby. Everyone knows that you work it lady, so work it baby, work it baby. Fashion every day, just work it baby, work it baby, work it baby. You good every way, just work it baby. I see the Dolly K, I dress the Dolly every way. Never on that Molly A, but you look like ecstasy. That antique style makes me wanna stay desu. But if I do that, then I know I won't get you, but you carry that. Well, she did not fall jointed You're like a dolly queen Or soon to be anointed Can't even find the words I can't seem to think through Leaving me speechless You're looking so sink through I also like it after dark I would go Gangoro If she's with the that I would still want her though Looking pretty fly Neon saturates my eye And your white eye shadow Has me screaming oh my Never thought I'd fall for a girl With a straight tan But you're looking so good Gotta take off my Ray-Bans You could even go Mamba And my Anaconda But still want some So go do what you want Cause you're outstanding Lovely and Maury's perfect baby Any style rock this perfect lady Hands been around like a circuit baby Everyone knows that you work it lady So work it baby, work it baby Fashion every day, just work it baby Work it baby, work it baby You're good every way, just work it baby You could be my Maury girl Or we'd have some stories girl Forever in the forest as long as you adore me girl And those Maury colors seem Yoshi and the style's tasty, you're cooking like Nabe. Desire style style, but girl, you know Hobbit. And I'm sure every Maury asks where you got it. Every color's so muted, but you're so eye-catching. Don't even have to shine to look ever so fetching. Gordo ain't got a line, and girl, you know which. But you've got me intent of making my body quits. And your style never quits. I don't want to be friends. Tell me what to do, you can be my DM. You can gal it up, though you already turn heads. In a t-shirt and jeans and a dirty pair of kids. Sweatpants, hair tied, crinolines with hair dyed. All eyes are on you. Sorry if I stare, I You're just shockingly beautiful. Lovely and Maury's perfect baby. Any style rock this perfect lady. Hands been around like a circuit baby. Every 
one knows that you're working it, lady. So work it, baby. Work it, baby. Fashion every day, just work it, baby. Work it, baby. Work it, baby. You're good every way, just work it, baby. Lolly and Mari is perfect, baby. Any style rock is perfect, lady. Hands been around like a circuit, baby. Everyone knows that you're working it, lady. So work it, baby. Work it, baby. Fashion every day, just work it, baby. Work it, baby. Work it, baby. You're good every way, just work it, baby. Again, that was from Animatic by Ultra Klystron. Thank you so much for the interview, Carl. Great talking to him and uh, learning more about his music, as well as his place in the Emerald Empire. Were you aware of the Emerald Empire Consortium of Rappers, Gore? I can't say that I was. This is a group in the Northwest that now uh, includes Death Star, Cloth and Pop, Ultra Klystron, beefy and many others so it's a very cool group that they're going to be working together and doing collaborations shows and all kinds of cool stuff (laughs) children's parties juggling acts (laughs) you name it emerald empire for all your nerd rap needs of course the interview that you just heard was recorded at sakura con 2012 so dude i gotta say i am a little bit tired of cons now i I can take a break I can officially rest, I think. So on uh, Saturday, I went, uh, as I mentioned, to NorwestCon, which is the kind of premier science fiction and fantasy convention in the Northwest. It has definitely more of a literary slant to it. You're a con pro. Yeah, I was at this event. Uh, I was better on, than being a pro con. <laughs> I was on four panels on Saturday, and I've come to the conclusion that I am not that big of a draw at panels. <laughs> <laughs> People aren't lining up to see Steve that much, I, I gotta say. In all fairness, though, one of our panels was actually counter-programmed against Ultra Klystron's nighttime concert, oh, which sucked, because not only was nobody there at our panel, but I would have rather been at Ultra Klystron. <laughs> so I absolutely understand. I'm not going to blame anybody for that. But uh, I had a good time hanging out with friends. Uh, got to hang out with uh, Eric Morgret from Miff a little bit. We had a couple of beers and played a couple of rousing games of Citadels in the gaming room, which was cool. Got to also see a very cool room party. Death Star was a rock in the mic, and that was a lot of fun. Played about a 45-minute, hour-long set. It was a really good time just to kind of whet my appetite for the forthcoming film festival. That's going to be so much fun, dude. Oh, yeah. We're not having a room party, though. No, we're not. And that was pretty much it for NorwestCon. I got to say, the gaming room was totally hopping there, and it was awesome because I walked in there, and, like, everybody from Bone Battle was there. So Kyle and Jester and Riddler, all the guys from Paizo were there running games. Sean from Steve Jackson Games was there running some Munchkin. It was really cool to see everybody again. So it was almost like a little Bone Battle reunion. That's funny. Yeah, it was cool. Then on Sunday, I took my daughter to her first SakuraCon, which is the Northwest's biggest anime convention. And that was a really good time. It was interesting because it was in the uh, Washington Convention Center, the same place that houses uh, Emerald City Comic Con and PAX. And, man, they had nice wide aisles and people weren't bumping into you. SakuraCon's a very well-heeled audience. Well, do they have a a not gay vampires booth? They're not gay vampires. (laughs) That's funny. My, uh, they're not vampires. He's a demon, but uh, my my daughter is really into a, uh, 
a manga and anime called Black Butler right now. And uh, she got her picture taken with every Sebastian and CL in the building. So that that was her big win. Uh, oh, that's cool. Some stuff I did. Uh, I was able to find a movie I was looking for on Blu-ray called Redline, which I'll talk about a little bit in triage. So that was awesome. I think I got the last one in the building. Also, uh, we watched a couple of videos. Uh, one movie we watched, Full Metal Alchemist. There's a series called Brotherhood, I guess. And the film was called The Sacred Star of Milos. It was great. Just a big, fun, action-packed eye-popping extravaganza very cool i thoroughly enjoyed it and then the other weird thing that we went to was they had like this fantasy fighting event where teams would kind of combat each other but it was like (laughs) air band kind of combat yeah it was it was air band yeah so like (laughs) they would do like moves and then the other guy would fall down it was the goofiest (laughs) thing oh god just when i think that i'm i am the geekiest man in the room no my daughter thought it was awesome, though. So there you go. Sometimes you take one for the team and you do what your kid wants to do. But uh, yeah, that was goofy. Anyway, Sakurakon was a lot of fun. I, I was only there for a short day, but I had a great time. And I would do it again, absolutely. Well, bully for you. Well, why don't we get down to another interview now? Now that I've gotten all the con stuff out of my system. This is Brett and Drew Pierce of Deadheads. Hi, I'm Drew Pierce, co-director of Deadheads the Movie. And I'm Brett Pierce, the other co-director of Deadheads. And you're listening to The Bone Bad Show. Amanda! Take Jack, come on! I'll cover you, come on! Listen close. We got about 30 seconds for those undead motherfuckers. Look, man, we're not looking to start some sort of zombie holocaust. I just want to get back to my girl. She was the one, the girl that you wait your entire life for. Do you love her? Yeah. We're going to go find that sweet girl of yours. I'm dead. No, no, we have a second chance here. So, what brings you guys out to these parts? The adventure of life, my friend. We're just trying to get home. Do me a favor. When you find this girl, tell her how you feel. I'm, I'm going to. So what's new with you, huh? Me? Oh, nah. Detachable arm. <laughs> Look, I found this. It's my reunion. Ellie will be there. Hey, Mike. It's been a long time. I mean, you look not good. I'm a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Did you run into any old boyfriends? No, he's definitely not here. Let's go. Oh, shit. Here comes Shaft the zombie killer. <laughs> All right. Finally, some action! What's up the truck? What's up, wait a minute? Go ahead, go ahead. All I know is that my best friend can't give up now. After everything we did to get here, I've been dead for three years. What are we supposed to do? Visit old friends, reconnect with the family? You got a girl who loves you. You know how rare that is. He who dares wins. Did it! Ah! Large popcorn. Ooh, one of these. Are you sick or something? Unprotected sex. All right. 
right. Once again, we are back here on the Bone Bad Show. And joining us now, Brett and Drew Pierce, the directors of the film Deadheads that you can see at the upcoming Bone Bat Comedy of Horrors Film Fest. How you doing, gentlemen? Good. We're doing good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the show here. I, I can't tell you how much it means that Deadheads is going to be part of our film festival. When I first heard of it, it looked great. I saw the trailer and I fell in love with it. Thank you for being a part. Ah, thank yeah, you guys. Oh, it's, appreciate uh, you. Totally our type yeah. of thing. <laughs> we saw a bunch of movies that when we were selecting movies for the film festival. You know, we had long conversations about should we do this one, should we do that one, especially with the shorts. But when it came to yours, seems like, well, what do you think of this? I like it. We should have it. Yeah, we should have it. Okay, next. <laughs> you know, was, oh, that's so cool. It's it was sweet. Here. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys are actually playing a. Uh, you guys play Monster Brawl too, right? Yes, we are. Yeah, we are. Yeah, actually, I know the guys that made that. They were at a lot of film festivals with us. They're super cool. Really nice guys. <laughs> yeah, we interviewed Jesse for the show as well, and uh, spent a little bit of time oh, okay, talking to him cool. too. So yeah, it's like one big yeah, party. Yeah. Man. So what yeah, is it's funny with these film festivals when you travel around, you kind of make good friends because you see the same couple guys from each film festival. Yeah, and it's a it's a small world. You never know, you know, when you're going to work with somebody on a film down the roads. So yeah, one, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things I really love about Deadheads is the opening sequence you guys put together. That while you have this setup of a couple of regular guys who wake up one day and find out that they're zombies, and then it cuts to this hard-hitting opening credit sequence that is just a big homage to Night of the Living Dead. And it's just amazing. I love how you did that. Oh, yeah, it, it was uh, something we were really into, too, because we just wanted to be, you know, two zombies, start out in Night Living Dead, and then leave that movie to go on, like, a love road trip comedy. <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys leave uh, Night Living Dead. And it was actually something we, we always wanted to do, and that scene, actually, inside the cabin and stuff was really supposed to be, like, a whole scene in the movie. It was, like, edited, like, actual sequence, and then we just chopped it up and put all the most interesting parts, and this guy made this amazing title sequence for us, Don Pasco, so it just ended up being this, like, Really cool, grindhousey, ten-minute zombie movie, like right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it's that's really awesome. I yeah. love it. And then you go right into it. You've got these uh, these great actors that you, well, at least I immediately was endeared to. One guy wakes up and has the realization that that he's a zombie, and is shortly uh, teams up with someone else who's a little more clued into the whole life of a zombie, if you will. And they hit the road. Yeah. Yeah, I think we were excited to do a story that was about two zombies on a road trip. We were like, we want to make people care about zombies. <laughs> they were like, that's, that's <laughs> a challenge. Let's make a movie where people have to care too. about the zombies. We're <laughs> zombie fans so we can shorthand it and just kind of like cut to the chase, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that really uh, sold that, I mean, you had the two two buddy zombies who were articulate speaking zombies with most of their body parts still attached. And then you've got the regular old shambling, grunting uh, zombie that's almost like a pet, uh, Cheese. Mm-hmm. For a man with no lines, I mean, God, he was great. I was pulling for Cheese the whole time. Yeah, Marcus Taylor, an awesome character. Marcus Taylor did a great job in that role. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we'll let him know. He's, he gets a lot of love when we show our movie around. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the things that's kind of cool because, you know, the, the main duo of Michael McKitty and Ross Kidder, they do a great job and they're so likable and personable and you just want to spend time with those guys. And in addition, you have some also other actors who are great scene stealers, like Harry Berkey as Cliff is hilarious, and Ben mm-hmm. Webster as McDinkle, the uh, mutton chops <laughs> that move like a man. That guy's amazing. Oh, yeah. Where did you dig him up? 
He was awesome. Yeah, Ben's an old buddy of ours, actually. He went to the same high school as Drew and I and some of the other guys that worked on the movie. And he's honestly always been kind of a class clown. And he was all, always kind of doing that character in a weird way, just kind of messing with us and people in class. And it's pretty much we ported over Ben's little class clown kind of stick uh, into the movie and said, that's McDinkle. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you, you say he was your buddy from high school. Now, this was truly an independent sort of an undertaking, wasn't it? I mean, you drove back to your hometown. Didn't you have a bunch of oh, people sleeping in your mom's house and stuff while you shot deadheads? Oh, yeah. We uh, basically we called uh, our mom's place uh, Project Mayhem from Fight Club because we just <laughs> at any given time we had 20 people running around doing different things, getting sets <laughs> ready, you know, <laughs> fixing camera stuff, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, on any, like, average morning, you'd wake up and my mom would be making food for the crew that day in the kitchen. She'd be prepping, like, breakfast sandwiches. She'd hand you one, you'd walk out the back, and somebody would be building a zombie containment unit in the backyard that was supposed to be on set the next day, and you'd approve it, and then you'd get in the car, try to get there, and start shooting. So it was like a total zoo, but it was fun. But we'd drive the set half the time in Zombie 1 in the uh, big black oh, in the van? We, uh, roll-painted. Yeah. We oh, called, that's awesome. Zombie 1. <laughs> we actually we had a buddy who um our our assistant director like uh, an old friend uh i went to college with he had a license plate that said zombie one just because he was a huge zombie fan he actually had a, a zombie wedding and we were like we're stealing that <laughs> so we just slapped it on the back i think there's only probably yeah. a shot or two in the entire movie you see it but nice well one of the things that really also sells the pictures in addition to having you know, the great comedic moments is you guys did not skimp on the high-quality gore. Who did your effects oh, for thanks. this film? It was uh, Dead Pretzel Effects. It's uh, just a couple of young, hungry guys that uh, they had gotten out of makeup school, I think, a couple of years prior, and they are just really talented. This, uh, this guy, Patrick Halpin, was like our lead effects makeup artist. And Chappie. Um, <laughs> uh, Jason Chappie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did a lot of, like, the spark effects and he's like uh essentially our he did a lot of makeup too but he um he loved to do the blood squirts he would just like rig up anytime we had like a like we have a heart that explodes and you know people getting shot in the chest anytime we he'd rig up tubing and just like probably explode about five times the amount of blood we needed for the shot <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to get blood everywhere <laughs> that's a man and after a, my own side, heart right side there. note he uh he lived in our mom's laundry room during the course, <laughs> <laughs> he was excited about because it was the only room that had a door. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> Luxury appointments, I guess, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in addition to having all kinds of friends and, and family participating, you had a certain uh, family tie-in to a very famous zombie movie that uh, you ended up getting using part of in your movie. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, um, our uh, our dad was the photographic effects artist for the original Evil Dead. Yeah, and, and I were uh, super. Bravo. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool, but uh, we were lucky enough. We got to grow up. Essentially, we were kids. Ramey and all the guys came to my mom, and were like, "Hey, we're all going to move into your house for a number of months because we got to finish up all the effects on Evil Dead." They just gotten back from shooting down in Tennessee, so they all kind of just took over the house and half destroyed it and just. You know, made it their own and ran up my mom's electric bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you get to witness firsthand any of Sam Raimi's famous abusive actors? 
not really. We only I, actually the only time I remember even seeing Sam on set is <laughs> like way later. We went to the set of Darkman, watching him direct. But we we've heard a lot from uh, Bruce <laughs> and um, a bunch of the other actors uh, actually live out near us out here in uh, Glendale, California. We uh, hang out with Danny does from uh, Evil Dead Two and oh nice. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've listened yeah, to some yeah. co- commentaries with uh, Bruce Campbell and Sam's brother, who just talk about ah oh, being in those suits for yeah. hours. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've heard even stories beyond what is written in, like if chins could kill, just from over the years, like <laughs> them burying people in the ground and just not letting them leave, and just the swords. That yeah, they get a, and my dad even said, even like he was just telling us the other day, he was like, "There's this one time where they were just making Bruce like climb a ladder." and jump off from the top and just, like, land on his back and whatever. And he's like, I was positive they had the shot, like, two times already. And then they made him do it, like, another dozen times. <laughs> I was just like, that's like, yeah. It was all yeah. fun then. But I agree with it. I think you should abuse all actors. <laughs> nice, so, nice. No. We so definitely that... carried that tradition on. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was very cool that Sam allowed you to use a little bit of Evil Dead in the film, in the drive-in scene. It's just a little salute to the past there. That's very cool. Yeah, that's, actually, that scene that plays on the on the screen there is our, our dad's big claim to fame. It's his end FX sequence, the meltdown from Evil Dead. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we kind of wanted to, We were excited about the idea of taking our dad's movie and putting it in our movie <laughs> and, like, his part. So it was kind of a... A little honor, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. There, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of your family in this movie. I mean, you guys really involved everyone, including, I might add, your grandmother. <laughs> yeah. That's a really yeah. cool story. Oh, yeah, we had the, the whole sequence where um, Cliff was going to dump Pepe's ashes, and the morning of we were going to shoot, actually the night before, our mom decided that... Um, she had our grandmother's ashes in her sock drawer for God years and years and years and just didn't know what to do with them. And she thought it would be the best send off if we just used our grandma and dumped her ashes in the scene. And so we <laughs> went to set and, uh, you know, prepared to do it. And we, we had to tell our, uh, our lead actor, Mike, that he not only had to prepare to do this emotional scene, but also he, uh, be dumping our actual grandmother. So wow. <laughs> it was a good time. <laughs> That's some pressure to put on your actor, too. Don't fuck this up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I got no facts about for this. Getting, <laughs> yeah, he was just paranoid about getting our grandmother all over the place. I know that uh, someone's blowing it up in his face and in his, uh, like, in the Big Lebowski, <laughs> in his uh, cuffs. But he, he was a good sport about it. Your grandmother was, she was an artistic person as well, correct? So it's kind of neat yeah, that your family she, came she full circle like that. Yeah, she was a she painter, was and my mom amazing. was a painter, and our grandma would sign her up for art classes and taking the drawing class all the time, and she'd take me to the comic store to buy comic books because I was obsessed with, like, stories. <laughs> so it was totally fitting because she would have totally loved what we were doing. She just would have thought it was the coolest thing. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. When I, when I read that, I just thought that was really amazing and sweet that, you know, that was able to happen. So very cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was really important to us, too. We were glad we got to do it. <laughs> so now that Deadheads is making the film festival circuit and it's out on DVD, what's next for the Pierce brothers? What do you guys have coming down the pike? Well, we've been, um, we're just trying to get the next project going, um, which is we're psyched about this like Halloween witch movie, which is kind of a horror adventure movie, but uh, it's all based on the myth of what the original witch, like the one you see in a 
you know, the, with the broom and the cat on it, like where that kind of started. So we're excited to do that. But uh, I think we're going to do a deadhead short, actually. We're kind of working it out right now just because uh, we kind of want to work with somebody again that was in the movie and just kind of take our hand at it one more time just because uh, we had so much fun working with those people that it would just be awesome to take a, a week and just make a real kick-ass deadhead short. <laughs> no oh, that, that is great. You know, the thing is, our film festival shows shorts, too. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll have to send it to you next year because it, it's not going to be done in a week or two. <laughs> oh, no, that'll be cool for next that, year. That we'll sounds like up. a deal, man. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll definitely, <laughs> it, you know, if, if we do it and it's looking like we are, we'll definitely send it your guys' way. <laughs> well, you know, that's awesome because I was kind of hoping for a sequel. You you grow to love these characters so much over the length of Deadheads that I would absolutely want to spend more time with those guys. And so that's I, that's awesome to hear that there's a short maybe coming. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, well, if, if it happens, it's going to be a cheese short. So <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Oh, the best. Yeah. <laughs> you have a Kickstarter or something you need, you're, you're doing for that? <laughs> Not yet. We might be doing that. We're, we're trying to kind of work out the kinks right now and when we're going to go shoot it. But I think we're going to shoot it in June. And we'll, we'll probably start a Kickstarter thing just because independent filmmaking is... It's not the most uh, glamorous job. It's not a job. It's a hobby. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, let us know, and we'll be yeah. glad to pass the word on to our viewers and listeners, too. So. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks, oh, guys. Thank <laughs> absolutely. All right, gentlemen. Well, no Bone Bat Show interview would be complete without the question, what pisses you off? <laughs> I was going to say uh, paid parking pisses me off because I live in L.A. It's not even the traffic here that bothers me, but it's when I get to where I'm going and I just have to spend, you know, half hour driving around looking for a spot, pay five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Seattle's just as bad, man. You, anytime, oh, really? Yeah, anytime you go to the city, it's either you're going to pay an arm and leg for parking or you're going to get a ticket. It's one of the two. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both of those are better than going there's, to San Francisco. There's places in San Francisco where you're just fucked. You just drive around <laughs> for half an hour once you're there because there is no parking. You just drive yeah, yeah. until you finally find a place. The signs in L.A., you have to have, like, a degree to read them because there's usually, like, yeah. four, five, six <laughs> signs stacked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah like, it's like you know, no parking on the third Sunday of every February between 2 and 1 o'clock. <laughs> oh, yeah. According to the Mayan yeah. calendar. That shit just yeah, happened exactly. to me. <laughs> I, I went into Seattle to see this band that's playing at our film festival, Death Star. And it was one of those deals where I look up and I see the sign and there's a spot. And I pull in and then the top one says, like, no parking before 6 p.m. And I'm like, tits, yeah. this is great. So I jump out of the car. I run to the concert, go see the band. I come back. I have a ticket on my dash. I look up and underneath that sign is a smaller sign that after 8 p.m. there's still no parking without a permit. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! <laughs> so, fifty bucks. Thank you, City of Seattle. Oh god! You know what? There's probably. I always say this whenever I pay a parking ticket. It's like I just paid for some monument in in the city. It's like in downtown LA. There's some statue that I just put the arm on. <laughs> <laughs> the tomb of yeah. the unknown Parker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you so much for your time and once again for allowing oh, no, us thanks. to play the film at our fest. Thank cool. Thanks for having us, guys. Cool. Really appreciate it, and we're psyched to be part of the fest. <laughs> thanks, guys. I'd like to go to a film festival, but where can I find one that offers hilarious independent comedy? I'd go to a film festival, but only if it offered blood drenched horror. I like movies. 
But I like live music too. If only there was some place where I could get both. Sound familiar? It's Saturday, and your awkward love triangle has nothing to do. You want to go somewhere to see independent horror, comedy, and horror comedy films, as well as the finest musical acts in the Pacific Northwest, but you can't find it anywhere. Well, have I got news for you. Saturday, April 21st, 2012, at the Big Picture Theater in Redmond, Washington, the Bone Bat Comedy of Horrors Film Festival has exactly what you need. Wait a minute. Comedy and horror movies in live bands, too? You betcha. Local nerdcore legends Death Star will be rocking the mics with a set of the nerdiest, bounciest, dopest beats. Sure, nerdcore is nice, but I like ear-blistering metal. Good news, sugar britches. The Boneback Comedy of Horrors will also feature a set by metal artists burning of eye. Harder than adamantium and tighter than a Romulan marital aid. Burning of eye is sure to please. Ooh. Hold on. Nerdcore rap and progressive metal are fine. But this is a film festival. And feature-length films are too long for my short attention span. Do you have anything for me? The Bone Bat Comedy of Horrors Film Festival will have a metric shit ton of short films. As well as feature-length films. Mother of fuck! That's cool. When is it again? The Bone Bat Comedy of Horrors Film Fest. April 21st, 2012. At the Big Picture in Redmond, Washington. Tickets on sale now at www.bonehand.com. The ticket gets you the whole seat, but you only need the edge, edge, edge. No, just kidding. You'll, you'll use the whole seat. It's kind of a long show. They're comfortable. You'll like that. All right, and we're back once again. Thank you to Brett and Drew of Deadheads. Yeah, thanks. I thought you were going somewhere with that right no, I was waiting for you to say, yeah, thanks. So multimedia triage. I was, I was, multimedia triage. I was waiting for you to jump in and carry some of this weight. No way. I got a bad back. I don't carry anything. All right. How about some multimedia triage? Multimedia triage. I'm the hype man. I just repeat stuff that you say, except with more expression. <laughs> what? 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 Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. You know what I watched this week? What? Terminator, the original. Nice. The 1984 movie before they had discovered computer enhanced anything to do with movies. In that movie, did they have a plasma rifle in the 40 watt range? They did. They did have a plasma rifle in the 40 watt range. Nice. It was actually a phased plasma rifle in the 40 watt range. Oh, see? Yeah, the things you know. You know. All the trivias and shit. Yeah. In some way, you know, the way that movie starts, I was a little worried that it wasn't going to be as good as I remember because it is that almost Flash Gordon quality of cheesy spaceship model flying around. You can almost see the piano wires holding the stuff up. (laughs) But that movie, it stands up to the test of time. It was a fun movie. If you haven't gone and watched Terminator, the movie that started it all... That's a fun movie to watch. I highly recommend it. And speaking of ridiculous puppet string movies, I saw The Muppets. Yeah? How was that? You know, it was kind of fun. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for The Muppets. And when I found out that Jason Segel, the guy that did Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and had inexplicably had a character in it that put on a musical puppet show version of the story of Dracula. I recall that. 
Well, the thing is, the guy's really into puppets, and he always wanted to do a full-on puppet show movie. And he ends up doing the Muppet movie. So how do you not watch that? That's kind of charming. It was fun. It was innocent. It was cute. The Muppets were a little too altruistic and went on a little too long. But there was a version of CeeLo Green's song, Fuck You, (laughs) as sung by chickens. (laughs) Fuck you. It was pretty cute. And, you know, the lyrics were just completely... Just things like that. I don't know. So speaking of full on, did uh, Jason Siegel walk around the movie with his junk hanging out like <laughs> no, getting Sarah Marshall? I've seen way too much of that man's time. penis, frankly. I don't need to see his junk anymore. You I'm know, good. I, I think he's got it out of his system, at least for <laughs> one movie. <laughs> Although that would have made an awesome scene with Animal. <laughs> animal! Sorry. I always like watching Animal beat the skins. <laughs> Did you have to? I had to. (laughs) And on that note, I also watched Love the Beast. (laughs) Nice segue. Thank you. Love the Beast was a a documentary. Kind of a cool documentary about an actor. I don't know what the crap this guy's been in. You probably do. Eric Bana? He was in the first Hulk movie. Which I missed because it looked horrible. He was the Hulk in the first Hulk movie. Oh, all right. So that guy, I guess he's an Australian. And his whole, like... Teenage years up through today, he's had the same Ford GT Falcon coupe. And him and his buddies, over the course of his, you know, the last, whatever, 20 years, have been tuning up and making this car more and more of a hot rod. And years ago, he raced it in the Target Tasmania four-day-long rally race in Tasmania. And this was the story about the car and that race, and then doing it again as a an old grown-up taking that that old Ford GT Falcon back to Tasmania and racing in a four-day rally. And it was just kind of a cool documentary, not the kind of thing you'd usually watch, but really weird in that it had Jay Leno, Jeremy Clarkson, and Dr. Phil, of all people, doing little little bits in it as well. Like, you can see Jay Leno because he's the car collector celebrity, right? Everyone knows that. And Jeremy Clarkson is the the power behind the British series Top Gear. But then Dr. Phil, what the fuck? That was, that was a sort of odd. Like Dr. Phil trying to give this guy advice about this car. It was, that was weird. Anyway, kind of cool little flick. Love the Beast. I think you can watch it streaming on Netflix. Interesting. And that's it. That's all I've done with my four and a half hours since we did our previous podcast. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Let's see, I, I actually have watched a bunch of movies lately. How have uh, you done this? I don't you've know. You've like two conventions, you've been working on the film festival nonstop, and you're watching movies and reading books, and you probably like wrote and directed a screenplay while you were at it. Yeah, I did, I did not. That, that was really all I did. But we did last weekend, took uh, the family to see Hunger Games. Which was it filmed in that terrible bouncy cam that I keep hearing about? uh, Yeah, it had a lot of that. It had a lot of hey, um, it's called a tripod. Use it. Where like just static scenes of like people walking in a crowd are bouncing around. I mean, just nonsensical. It's one thing if it's an actual action scene to have it bouncing around, but when it's bouncing around just sitting in a room, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So the, the director needs to work on that. But as far as your negative utopias go, it wasn't bad. It was actually a passable bit of entertainment. You know, my daughter and my wife have both read all the books and are big fans, so I didn't glean as much sheer fangirl enjoyment out of it as they did. But it was, 
I've sat through worse things. Yes, you have. This show, for example. <laughs> Except this one right now. This one you are listening to as it comes out of my mouth. But I fixed that with a uh, the deluxe version of Battle Royale. The, the original, which was awesome. Now, also a story. It's a Japanese film, for those who aren't familiar. It's also kind of a post-apocalyptic thing. Uh, a clash each year in Japan is chosen to go to this island and fight to the death. And... It does the same thing as Hunger Games, but I would argue even better. So it was cool to revisit that one. Yeah, now, before Hunger Games. W- while I was watching this, I had picked it up at Scarecrow Video last week. They were having a sale. One of our sponsors of the film. Nice Festival. plug. Thank you. And uh, at the start of it, there was this trailer for this movie, Redline. And I-, I was like just watching that trailer going, holy shit, what is that? And the best way I can describe Redline to you is, imagine if... The makers of the 1980s heavy metal movie yeah. got together with the people who did Eon Flux and remade Death Race 2000 as a cartoon. Oh, man. Just I a, love the original Death Race 2000. A crazy... A, grenade, a hand grenade. <laughs> it, was it is a, part of his literally, hand. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I just... This movie is badass. It's just over-the-top, flying, crazy, insane racing action with, like, you know, people that are driving cars so fast, gritting their teeth that, like, blood's coming out of their nose. That happens It's got crazy-ass aliens. Basically, the story is about this guy named Sweet JP, who's like this greaser kind of guy, who is a, a racer that's gotten caught up in the mob, and he's had to throw races in order to be able to race, to get enough money to stay in the game. In the meantime, he kind of backs into this race called the Red Line, which happens once every five years, which is like Death Race 2000. It's like a no-rules, balls-out, survivalist race. And they place it on this planet that is completely populated by robots. And the robots hate anything organic and consider it an act of hostility to even set foot on their soil. So you've got these guys, all these crazy racers that are racing across the planet while this giant army of robots are trying to kill them. <laughs> and it's completely hand-drawn. It's done by, let me see, the director is Takeshi Koike, who worked on the Animatrix and Afro Samurai. All right. The studio's Madhouse, so they did Vampire Hunter D and Death Note. And, you know, it's just got a really good pedigree to it, and it's a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Just crazy, over-the-top action. I think you would really dig it. I think it's I would really dig it, too. Not for the kids. There's a couple of bad words and some boobies. So, <laughs> so you know. Okay, thank you. Now, speaking of fucked-up movies, Troma Studios is at it again. Oh, Troma. And they just hit me a couple of weeks ago with their latest film, Father's Day. It's from a Canadian film collective called Astron 6. And it's crazy because it starts out like late night TV. It's like, welcome to Channel Astron 6. At 1 a.m. we've got Father's Day, followed at 3 by Star Rangers. I mean, it's just, it's funny. It's got like these goofy commercials in it. Yeah. And then it goes into the movie. Now, the movie is kind of high concept. It's the story of a guy named Ahab, a one-eyed syrup maker. I think I see where this is going. (laughs) A one-eyed syrup maker who returns to the city to rescue his stripper sister 
and avenge the death of their father, who was killed at the hands of the Fuckman, a serial killer who rapes, mutilates, and eats people's dads. Oh, my. (laughs) Now, this is one for the kids, though, right? This is not one. This is one maybe not even for you. This has serious (laughs) big boy gore. And, you know, when you're making a film about a crazed father raper, you're not going to do that without breaking a few eggs, if you know what I mean. I suppose you are the expert on these things. (laughs) So it's absolutely just a crazy film. It's got crazy over-the-top gore. The characters are super stupid, but the script is really sharp, so there's a ton of laughs in it. And it's just really funny. The actors do a great job, and it takes a ridiculous turn at the end into this evil Satanist cult thing. So it just gets more over the top and more over the top and more over the top. And I had a great time watching it. I don't think it's for you, but if you like Troma, it's probably one of the best Troma films I've ever seen. It's really well done. The gore is absolutely cringe-inducing. I am wincing just sitting here listening to you talk. Yeah, there's like actual penis lacerations and stuff. I mean, it is crazed. It is absolutely crazed, but it was thoroughly watchable. If you Were can, you abused as a child? If you can handle that sort of thing. If you've spent any quality time at all with Lucio Fulci, you'll be fine with this film. But I thought it was pretty great <laughs> in, in the end. <laughs> just because you're just like, what, my God, what did I just see? I'm wondering what I just listened to. So there you go. Father's Day from Troma. Check it out this Father's Day. Buy it for your dad. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Dad, I saw this thought of you. And that's what I've got. Okay, that's multimedia triage. Let's uh, hose that out of your head with another tune. This song from 2004's Revision 4920, and it's called Otaku Sound System. Behind the 
time that show ran and zippy I always drop my beats filled with comedy and sadness Because at the end of the day I got a case of space madness I bring many references you never heard before Even if you call on time fan attend your core I'm the ultra python and I kick a different rhythm And I bring to the table the otaku sound system I bring many references you never heard before Even if you call on time fan attend your core I'm the ultra python and I kick a different rhythm And I bring to the table the otaku sound system I kick this jam straight into automatic I clean it up like I'm a horomatic I dye my hair pink with some manic panic Like an 80s beat, I'm dancing robotic You know I roll with the crew on confusion And I play lots of Dance Dance Revolution I'm dropping a new Nerdcore Jungle Fusion Maybe hear it on the Absolution I bring many references you never heard before Even if you're all on time fan attend your core I'm the ultra fly strand and I kick a different rhythm And I bring to the table the whole time I bring many references you never heard before Even if you're all on time fan attack your core I'm the ultra class run and I kick a different rhythm And I bring to the table the whole time sound system I bring many references you never heard before Even if you're all on time fan attack your core I'm the ultra class run and I kick a different rhythm And I bring to the table the whole time sound system I bring many references you never heard before Even if you're all on time fan attack your core I'm the ultra class run and I kick a different rhythm And I bring to the table the whole time We called this meeting because we have not been entirely forthcoming about the situation in this building. It seems there's been a mole man living under the building for some time now. So. It's been eating our pets and putting us, generally speaking, in harm's way. Well, someone should warn Mrs. Habershackle. The mole man ate Mrs. Habershackle earlier this evening. Questions? Oh, you guys are an inspiration. As you know, I run a home business out of my apartment. A brothel is more like it. It's not a brothel. Okay, a brothel is many prostitutes. Anyway. Easy bright lights that keep going on and off. And if I can't do what I do, then how are you going to get paid? On and off! So I would like two ceiling fans mounted horizontally and on and off at all hours what do you think is happening to everyone's pets he's not the only pet to go missing from this broken down building i don't know they get fed up with living in this dump and they leave you guys must really love animals yes we really love animals they're too cute to kill We guesstimate that the distance from the furnace to the bedrock level below is somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to like 35 feet. Are you guys high? Why wouldn't they like us? We're very likable. Bro, it's a crook! We're about to die right now. Yes! 
We've been calling it a mole man, too. That's the same word we There's use. absolutely no other term that could possibly be applied. All right, once again, we are back. And joining me now on the Bone Bat Show, the directors, the producers, the writers, the actors, basically these gentlemen did everything in Mole Man for Belmont Avenue. And then some, this is Mike Bradish and John LaFlamboy. How are you guys doing? Thank you. I love thinking of it as the fact that we did everything on the movie, but there's about 150 people that worked on it that would get real, real mad to hear us playing that card yeah. too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did everything that we couldn't find someone else to do for free. I think is what we did. <laughs> well, maybe a better way to put it is you had a finger in everything. <laughs> yeah, definitely that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's accurate, twofold. One, because it makes it clearer that other people were doing things. And two, because it's kind of gross. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think our participation was kind of gross. Like, our, like, <laughs> we had a little a finger in it, but we had licked that finger before we put the finger in it. Nice. Well, it's yeah. good that you could ease the creative process, as it were. <laughs> So, it's been actually a couple of years now since you guys have had those bone bat idiots from Seattle bugging you about your movie. And when I first heard about Mole Man, what made me so excited about it is you never see Mole Man movies anymore. It's such a great idea. How did you guys decide to make this movie happen? It was called John. <laughs> uh, it was, um, John, how did we decide? You know, there was another movie we wanted to make, but of course... It was expensive, and there's no way anybody was giving us the money to make it. So we wanted to do um, something fun, something that uh, we had the resources to pull off. And uh, I wrote this kind of ridiculous little outline about, you know, two brothers in a hairy situation where they uh, couldn't handle conflict. And well, when it came to a monster, when it came to the creature, I wanted to do something that I thought was pretty much as ridiculous as the rest of the things we do uh, with, I guess, our acting and our writing. So I came up with Mole Man. You know, so you're, you're true. You're right. It's it's classic, old-school monster. <laughs> you haven't seen it since the 50s. And I want it to be fun. You know, I want it to be There's enough zombies and werewolves and vampires and glitter all over the place right now. So we just wanted to do something fun. It really sets itself apart. And it has that fun vibe to it with the writing the two of you did together. What was your creative process in writing the script? Uh, well, we started with John's premise. But he pitched to me, and he told me the idea, and I said, that's terrible, and I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, a couple of years later, all of a sudden it started sounding pretty uh, enticing. So our process to, uh, we outlined it first, and the way we did the outline was by eating at the same bar in Chicago, because I still lived in Chicago at the time. We met at the same bar in Chicago once a week and just hashed out the outline and would go and just sort of beat the thing up until we got more and more detail and a clearer idea. And then when we were most of the way through the outline, we just started, you know, actually hammering out some of the scenes here and there. It was a fast turnaround. And once we get to that point, I mean, really, my work in the writing is, is pretty much with outline and story and a little bit of character development. But Mike then takes it to his secret dark hole and... Uh, <laughs> breathes life into it. He makes it smart. He makes it funny. Uh, the dialogue is pretty much all Mike. You know, he's, he brings the dialogue and the characters to life. Uh, I usually come up with a ridiculous story. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm the one who sits down at the computer and like makes the outline words on the page. But then those pages get passed back and forth between the two of us about a hundred times too before yeah we something it. Actually to the point where we're both happy with it. Well, that's also, a- I have three secret dark holes, and the one he's talking about here is a room with a computer in it. I just <laughs> want to distinguish it from all of my other secret dark holes. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, just to be clear. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't write screenplays up my own ass, is what I want to make clear. Well, I don't literally crawl into my own sphincter and have a computer up there. I have an iPhone up there. But I don't find it a very efficient way to write screenplays. Yeah, I wouldn't think. Even with Siri, that's that's a bit of a challenge. Maybe <laughs> like a, a three-minute web short I could write on my asshole iPhone, but that's, that's as much as I want to well, one of the things I find so endearing about the film is the dialogue, that it, it sounds like buddies talking throughout much of the film when gordon and i fuck with each other it sounds just like that and you got that realistic ear and that's really cool that and i really enjoyed the chicago flavor that you brought to the film i thought that was really cool too and notable kind of sets it apart a little bit well yeah i I, I think a lot of that you know the fact that it does sound like two bodies just screwing around is because that's the truth it's i mean it really is mike and i went to college together you know we, we did some theater shows together and then made a bunch of shorts when we graduated college. And for the most part, when we do get to work, whether it's writing or, you know, putting the ideas together or being in front of the camera, I really do feel like it's two friends just playing, just playing around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that's just, that's who we are. You know, I mean, I, I think, of course, the, the script, <laughs> those are overinflated characters of ourselves, but the camaraderie there, um, the ease with that is just, that's just us, you know, having fun. The other way we cheat dialogue is just by loading the movie with all these incredible, like, super experienced veteran improvisers from Chicago. These guys have been doing Second City and all those other improv theaters in Chicago for years and years, and they come in, and we make it real clear to them first thing when they get on set, like, don't worry about the words on the page, (laughs) you know, just make it comfortable for yourself, and they not only make it comfortable for themselves so it sounds natural, but they make it a lot funnier, too, so... It's, uh, it's a good way to see the script. Yeah, it was an awkward moment on set for almost every new actor that would come in. And, you know, we'd set it up where we'd do a few takes. You know, we'd do one, uh, one for the camera, you know, one for the actor. And then we'd say, you know, have fun with this next one. Just say whatever you want. Don't take the script too seriously. We really don't have any respect for the writers. <laughs> <laughs> and there was that moment where they got to like, oh, these guys are assholes, until they realize we're talking about ourselves. <laughs> and, and, and then we just have fun. And when you get people like T.J. Jagodowski and Dave Desquazy and Kazarinski and Messing and Holloman, and they're all playing on set with you like that, you get gold from those people if you just let them play. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because lots of films have an actor who's capable of stealing a scene. And this movie is packed with steam sealers. I mean, <laughs> you've got Robert the Cop is freaking hilarious, Greg Holloman. Susan Messing yeah. is the bartender. It was amazing. Dave Pasquese as the hermit. I mean, all these, these actors and TJ as Polly, all of them were so funny. And they would come in and it was just a ball. You want to spend more time with those folks. On one hand, I sometimes think a shame that these people are not household names unlike a Will Ferrell or the kind of people that Christopher Guest uses in his movies because I would put them as improvisers pound for pound against anybody else in the world who improvises 
And on the other hand, though, I think they're not household names because they don't want to be. They love Chicago. They want to stay in Chicago. They do a lot of theater. They do commercial work and voiceover work to pay the bills. And then they're doing improv and theater, and they're teaching, you know, and they're just, uh, like, good for them that they're not some schmuck living in L.A. trying to audition for pilots and getting frustrated because he didn't get out for pilot season more than about twice this year. And even though he's on commercials and on TV five times a day, every day for the last three years, for some reason, that's not getting him any love from the TV people. But are we at the portion where we talk about what pisses us off? No, we're not quite there yet. (laughs) Hold on, hold on. Hold on, man. Hold on. (laughs) <laughs> no, but seriously, like, good for them. They're making careers doing the things that they love to do, and good for us that we were able to exploit these geniuses. Yeah, and these are people that just showed up at an audition for us. These are the people that we saw on stage when we were taking improv classes. We would go watch these people. These are our favorite improvisers, our favorite performers in Chicago. So for us, to be able to write a script with those people in mind, I mean, TJ and Dave and Susan, these people were in mind the entire time we're writing this script. Thinking the whole time we were writing it that we wouldn't be able to get those people and we would just cast our friends mm. in it. You know, that was the thought process going through it. We, yeah, we, ne- we never thought they'd actually do it, but uh, <laughs> we certainly had them in mind. And when they all said yes, uh, for us, it was, yeah, it was like winning the lottery, you know, being able to work with some of our favorite people on our first film. You know, it's, one of the greatest experiences. Surround yourself with people more talented than you are. <laughs> you know, one other person that, actually there's a couple, I mean, Tim Kazarinski as well, but Robert England adds a touch of class to every movie he's in. What was it like to oh, be yeah, able to work with this guy who's just a horror legend? The oh, first wow. Thing Robert did when he showed up on set, he walks up to me and he said, uh, he starts telling me that there was a little confusion, and I get a little worried at first. But it becomes clear. He, we, uh, we used him for two days. Mm-hmm. And then he flew on one day, flew in on one day, flew out on another day. So we had him booked for four days altogether. So just because of uh, SAG rules with the union, we ended up paying him uh, a weekly rate since we were already using him for four days, just as sort of a simplification. Mm-hmm. So when he got there, he thought he was shooting for a week instead of just the two days. And the first thing he said, this is the first time I've ever met him in person, he walks up, he grabs me by the arm, pulls me aside, and says, listen, if you need me for longer, if it's an issue of money, I'll cover the hotel. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing that's ever. Like, (laughs) you are the greatest human being of all time. What a great guy, yeah. That was the very first thing out of his mouth when he showed up on set was, if you need me for more than the two days... You know, you're paying for me, you can have me, and if it's, he knows it's a low-budget thing, he knows we don't have a ton of money, but, you know, we had scheduled him. We only uh-huh. needed him for the two days, but he was, you know, just so game to hang out in Chicago and party with us and, and shoot this thing for longer. That kind of energy followed through with everything, you know, it's when it came to his costume. You know, he knew exactly what kind of suit, what kind of hat, what kind of feather should be in the hat. <laughs> and he didn't just show up to do a week of work. He showed up knowing this character more than we did, and we wrote it. Uh, and, you know, and, and when he came to interact with these other people, it's, it's not like he, you know, hung out in his private area. He was right there, you know, in the middle of the crap with us, you know, yeah. eating crappy food with us <laughs> and, and talking to us. And, and even on set, you know, when the cameras were 
he would also ride us lean over and say, you know, you might want to get another close-up of this guy. You know, knowing that it's our first time directing and give us little tips like that. And some of those little tips we followed through on weeks after he was gone. It was uh-huh. little nice filmmaking tips that he'd throw out there at us just to give us a little hand. And, yeah, it was great. You know, from having drinks with him to getting advice from him, the man is just... <laughs> Perfect gentleman and perfect professional when it comes to having oh, him yeah. on and, and I, was, I was so intimidated. You know, we were excited at first just because of his name. Just to have his name attached to the movie was the appeal at first. That was that was the big draw. And then as soon as we started pointing the camera at him and started rolling, it was like, oh, no, this isn't just a guy who is a horror legend that we can say is in our movie, this is a great actor who is knocking his part out of the park. Like, we yeah. we put him with TJ. We put him with TJ Jagodowski, who, like, I think may be the funniest person on the planet. And, you know, Robert was toe-to-toe with him every time they were on screen together. You know, he was right there with him being just as funny. So it was like, wow, like, not only is he this icon, but he's... He's an icon for a reason. He's really good at this stuff, and he and he puts the work in. And it's great to hear him utter lines that you have never heard Robert England utter in any other film. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, figure Cal- out how to get that line on TV now. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like working with Tim Kazarinski as well? I mean, this guy has got a huge history with SCTV, with Saturday Night Live. What a comedic master! And you got him as well in your film. Yeah, yeah we, and, you know, like, I think we've become pretty good friends with Tim since. Like, he's just another one. He's a mensch, same as Robert. They're just, like, the nicest guys in the world. Tim's become so, Uncle Tim to us uh, in Chicago. <laughs> like, Tim will show up at a party here and there and, and just, I mean, incredibly friendly, incredibly supportive guy. Well, I think one of the great things about Tim, not a lot of people know, Tim will show up and do a Columbia student film. Just show up and audition for a student film and do a student film. Oh, that's really uh, cool. Part of that process, you know, it's, he, I think he's so in love with the process of it all that he's always available. You know, he, he's always available to work with people and, and available to you right, to give on set. I, I think the greatest thing he gave us, probably my favorite moment of the entire movie, is uh, we had to get Tim out. He, he had a hard out that night because he had a show with Susan Messing. And after working with Susan Messing, I now live in fear of Susan Messing. <laughs> so we knew we knew not to disappoint Susan Messing and make Tim wait for their improv show. So we get to like the last shot of the day, and it's this little bit where we're um, playing with the bongo drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I recall. Anyone that. that knows me knows I can't hit a note to save my life. Like I may have the worst voice in the history of singing. And the sound guy comes up and he asks, he goes, "Hey guys." Uh, I don't know where to put the mic. Are you guys going to be singing during this improv bongo jam? And right away, I have no, 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 no. Haven't rehearsed it, don't have anything, no way. And Mike knows how bad I am at singing, so he didn't, you know, push for any singing. It was never the idea, too. It was just supposed to be a jam on the drums. Yeah. You know, it was never supposed to be singing. Song guy starts to walk away, and Tim goes, hey, hey, uh, hey, song guy. So I had Tim's around, he's like, yeah, we're going to be singing. <laughs> <laughs> and we know we only have one take at this and I'm like oh sweet Jesus <laughs> but at the same time Jim Kazerinsky just gave us the greatest improv gift ever didn't let us think about it at all and you know three seconds later our assistant director is yelling to action and we one take and that was it we, we hit it and oh. it was done and he got up and he had to go to a show 
There's about 15, 20 seconds of that bongo jam scene, and, and there's no bongos. <laughs> uh, drumming and jamming scene uh, in the movie, and I think the song we made up, just improvised on the spot, is at least three or three and a half minutes long. <laughs> Might have to be a bonus feature. Yeah, DVD, DVD extras right there, yeah. Cool. Well, I have a few uh, just kind of random questions. I watched the film again last night to get ready for this, and uh, a few things occurred to me, and I just wanted to ask. Now, tell me a little bit, who is Zombie Army, and what do they do? Uh, Zombie Army is my company here in Chicago. We're a production company, and uh, what we produce is haunted houses and uh, dark-themed events. Nice. So yeah, we've got a we've got a haunt out here in Chicago, and then we produce other haunts for other people. And we have our home base haunt, you know, the main one. It's kind of a this is our day job. I <laughs> I do haunted houses for a living. That's my day job. That's we're uh, big fans of haunts here. So to hear that, that's really uh, cool. Yeah, I mean that's where I am right now. Is at the haunted house, hiding John? in my car, so that way the saws aren't in the background. <laughs> so we do other events like zombie prom, the night of the stripping dead, night of the drinking dead. Very zombie Christmas, zombie army games. You know, John, we we have fun with the whole zombie thing. John is sort of the haunted attraction mogul of the Midwest. Within the haunt world of the Midwest, of like a good, and other parts of the country as well, because he, he travels his company in elegant style in the zombie army bus, which is this whole world unto itself. John is an icon of his own right within, <laughs> within the haunt industry. How about the bus, John? Uh, the bus is uh, yeah, our little promotional vehicle slash party ride. On the outside, it looks like it just came out of a post-apocalyptic George Romero movie with That's Rusty Cage. And, and the inside is like, TV tip my ride. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's got, you know, flat screens, leather, boom and sound system. And we have uh, zombie army parties on the bus. We go to conventions, horror conventions. You know, any kind of film convention we're invited to a film fest or uh, haunted house conventions, and and uh, we just have we have fun with it. We have fun with what we do. Cool. Uh, one of the other things that you did for the film is the song "My Foot and Your Ass Are Getting Married." This is the catchiest <laughs> ass tune, and I had to ask, man, you're a Renaissance man—a writer, actor, director, and a musician. <laughs> Holy shit, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that song. I first approached. Just by internet, I didn't have any connections with which to do this. I went, there's a guy who does kind of an internet celebrity musician, a guy named Jonathan Colton, who writes... Yeah, Jonathan, absolutely. So we approached Jonathan Colton. I was in contact with him, and he was just a little too big for us by the time we got to him and the time we were making the movie, because I thought he would be perfect to write a song for this movie. I, I thought that would be a good fit. And then we went, John and I's favorite band since college has been this band called Ween. So we approached Ween, and uh, we didn't really hear back from them. So once they didn't hear back, we were starting to run out of time. And I'm like, damn it, I know I know some specific things that I need. Like, I, we already knew this last shot of clanging the shovels together and hitting the things so the headlights come on. So I knew, like, some really specific guidelines. So I was like, I'm just going to write the thing and do it. So I just <laughs> threw it together <laughs> as sloppy as I could. But luckily we have this relationship with a studio in Chicago called Mosaic Music. And the guy who runs it, Rich Rankin, had scored shorts for us in the past. And I just worked with him on a couple of projects. And he brought us into his studio. And he brought in a drummer and a bass player. And we brought in Nicholas, the guitar player, 
the guy who plays guitar in the movie, mm-hmm. who also wrote the rest of the songs. We co- all in one day, we recorded that theme song, my fucking your ass song, and then we also recorded Nick singing five songs that he had written specifically for the movie. The kind of uh, blow- just all the- in one day, and Rich just made it sound like a real song, which amazed me. <laughs> and when Mike said he was going to write it, like to me, that was the greatest news. I love Mike's music. I love listening to his He's got incredibly dark, funny songs that he's written. Uh, and I've always been a fan since college. So when he said he was going to do it, I was like, that's like the best. <laughs> I was like a little kid all over. Like, I can't wait to hear it. And then when I heard it, they were like, oh my God, it's, it's so catchy. It sticks in your head. You can't get rid of it. I loved it. I think it's one of the best things about our movie is that song. It runs through as the theme and it really captures it. And it's the only time anyone will ever legally allow me to sing backups in a studio. <laughs> no one will ever let that happen again. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I got muted out of most of it anyway for the sake of the film. Yeah, it's preposterously catchy and I love it. I've been humming. It's been stuck in my head quite a bit lately as well. So well done, sirs. Oh, thanks. Thanks. So, John, I I do have a question for you. How challenging is it as an actor to perform Tai Chi in 50 pounds of hardware and sporting goods? (laughs) If you call that Tai Chi. (laughs) 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 Um, That was probably one of the easier things I did in all that armor in that movie. (laughs) The Tai Chi was easy. Falling down shoots, that's a different thing. Getting hit by Mike every time anything happened. I noticed that. Anytime anything happened, he turned it at me. Now, whether it was improv or he wrote it down, I was getting was hit one time after another. That was all written down. It was all carefully calculated. <laughs> Since you said that, you know, you tried to get everybody to do things for free, I can't imagine you had stunt doubles in this movie, correct? No. <laughs> so you guys were kind of beating the well, shit out of each other a good part of the film. Two things in particular where I think we each took a beat. John's big one, obviously, is the first time you see him fall down a chute, like toward the end of the movie, when he says, okay, I think the ladder is secure, and a run breaks, and he starts, and he falls. Look at the distance he falls, and that's all real. Like, he just dropped a good, what, 15 feet, 13 feet, that chute that you don't yeah, want? something ridiculous. Feet, yeah. and, you're uh, bu- and he just stopped. And you're behind everybody. On the way down. And everybody's behind the camera, like, keep it going, keep it going. Oh no! Well, I mean, I would tell a couple people I was gonna. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just told Mike, make sure that we're all set up, and you know, we're only gonna do this once. I tried to do it the safe way. I did, and and I looked at playback at it. It just looked awful, and so because we were tight with time, we had a jib on that day. We were renting, and you know, we had a hard out. There was no way we were gonna get everything. So I figured, you know, I just let go. See how that looks. Um, worst thing that happened, maybe I break the leg. So I just made sure Mike had everything, you know, I locked out and we, we had a good angle at it because I figured if I just let go, we'd only need one. <laughs> In my moment, which is significantly less drastic, I should have told mine first and saved the shoot for a second. But I had uh, in the scene with, uh, Kate, with the bartender's boyfriend, he's flipping me over his shoulder and I kept missing the mat that he was trying to put me onto and landing in the parking lot on my elbows. Oh, shit. So a scene in the movie, and this is a good continuity moment for you, there's a scene 20 minutes before that fight where we're in our apartment, kind of called 911, and I knocked the phone out of his hand, and we're standing there looking at the phone like we're afraid to hang up on it for some reason. I don't know. But there's an angle looking up at the two of us, and you can see my elbows are just scraped to shit. Like, there's scars and scratches 
all over my arms from the fight scene that doesn't happen for another 20 minutes well, later in the movie. Although you, you can look at Mike's arms for continuity through the movie because in one of the scenes where he sees Mole Man in the shoot and he freaks out and shuts the shoot and for some explicable reason, he starts beating me up. And <laughs> I, I mean, this is not in the script. This is just a fun improv. But Mike starts to really take the pounding on me, but I, I got my cheese grater arm going. Yeah. And he just sort of hitting the cheese grater arm with his own arm, and he stands his own forearms up hitting that. So it's fun to watch Mike's forearms and elbows shooting movie. <laughs> <laughs> But I've got a merchandising question for you. Now, have these super spade people got in touch with you? Because as a homeowner myself, I would think that a Mole Man of Belmont Avenue super spade could come in really handy at times. <laughs> they have not yet. <laughs> we talked about that. We really did have a marketing question about, like, should we be trying to get some money from the super spade people? And that's not what it's really called, is it? I don't know. Yeah, that's what you call it in the shovel. movie. Okay. And we changed it to Super Spade in the movie because we were afraid they'd sue us. <laughs> we didn't change the uh, the Atari 6400. For some reason, that stayed the same. But we're all afraid of the Super Shovel people coming after seeing this movie and coming after us. All right. Well, what do you guys got next? What is the next project after this movie for you two? Well, we're just well, talking we're, about that. Yeah. Go ahead with that one, Mike. I don't want to say too much, but I think we had this original movie that we wanted to make. We made a trailer for it a couple of years ago, like an extended trailer. I think it's about seven minutes long for a movie called Haunted House, the movie that just in the same way Mole Man does, but to a greater extent takes advantage of all these resources that John has as the Haunted House mogul of the Midwest that's really centered around the Haunted House for horror comedy feature. But I think before that, we're really talking about trying to shoot a pilot in Chicago. And I think Tim Kazarinsky is like, I'll never write anything that doesn't involve Tim again, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> you know, Why would I'll you? I always want Tim to be in everything again. But I think something with him, maybe some other people from Mole Man, too. I, I, yeah. I think that's something we'd like to look at. We just, you know, have some connections and know some people where TV might be a fun thing to try next. Nice. All right, well, our last question I will bother you with today is a question we ask all of our interviewees here on the Bone Bad Show. Gentlemen, what pisses you off? You know, it pisses me off, and I, I think this goes with, with making movies. The thing that frustrates me the most is anytime someone says, I can't, uh, and that always drives me up a wall. Like, when we're making something, especially independent film, you don't need people to say, I can't. You don't need problem reporters. You need problem solvers. And so that always drove me up a wall on set. Is when people would just tell me, no, I can't. So, of course, my favorite people on that set were the people that always found a way to get it done. And I think that's uh, the, the fun thing about Mole Man. Uh, the thing I love most about it is how quickly we got it done, how close to that budget we stuck, and uh, the end product of it all. You know, it was because it was a bunch of people that didn't say I can't. You know, they kept fighting, they kept getting it through, and, you know, we finished, and we're real happy with that first movie. I think my answer is pretty close to that, too. And it's, it's kind of like uh, the thing that I love is somebody who is enthusiastic and loves doing stuff and uh, loves being involved with stuff. Not only doing things, but doing things well. So the thing that pisses me off is the opposite of that. Like if you're 15 or 16, you're supposed to think everything is stupid and be apathetic toward everything. That's what you do when you're 15 or 16. If you make it 20, 21, or even worse, like 30s or 40s, and you're still that kind of, 
you know, I feel like our generation, when John and I were like high school, college age, we sort of had the generation that invented that everything is stupid, you know, that, <laughs> that sort of idea. Sure. If, if you're still doing that when you get out of college, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, that pisses me off. People who can't get excited about making something. Also, timeshare salespeople. They piss me <laughs> off. All right. Well, speaking of being enthusiastic, I just want to thank you both again, both for joining us here on the show and for allowing us to feature your film. I mean, like I said, I was really excited when I first heard about it, and it was kind of a bummer that it wasn't going to work out with our first fest. And the fact that it worked out for this one has just made me so damn happy, and I appreciate it so much. We're really excited, too. And you were, I think, the first person. You were possibly the first person to contact us about the movie. And, by, and when you were having the first festival, we were still editing, and we were just nowhere near having the movie to show by, by the first festival. So I love, like, the full circle of you were almost our first festival if we've been able to finish the movie in time, and now uh, it looks like a year later you're going to be our last festival, at least in the United States. And we love playing in Seattle, and everything we've seen about the fest is great. So we're really excited to be playing there, and we appreciate you having us. And thanks for that, for the talking with us. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, once again, thanks for joining us. We will be speaking with you soon. All right, thanks, Steve. Good luck with everything. Coming. Thanks, Steve. Bye bye. All right, so filthy jokes. Filthy jokes. Who wants to go first? You want me to go, go first? first. Me, go me, first? me. A man and his wife go to their honeymoon hotel for their 25th anniversary. As the couple reflected on that magical evening 25 years ago, the wife asked the husband, when you first saw my naked body in front of you, what was going through your mind? The husband replied, all I wanted to do was fuck your brains out and suck your tits dry. Then, as the wife undressed, she asked, what are you thinking now? He replied, looks like I did a pretty good job. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard that one. It's a classic. It is a classic. So, one day, a mother's working in the kitchen, and she's listening to her five-year-old son playing with his new train set in the room next door. She hears the train stop, and her son says, All you sons of bitches who want off, get the fuck off now, because this is the last stop. And all you cocksuckers who are getting on, get your ass on this train, because this motherfucker's about to move. The mother is horrified. She storms in, and she tells her son, We do not use that kind of language in this house. I want you to go to your room and stay there for two hours. When you come out, you can play with your train, but I expect you to use nice language from now on. The son goes into the room. Two hours later, he comes out, and he resumes playing with his train. Soon, the train stops once again, and the mom listens kind of ear to the door to make sure that the son is behaving. All passengers who are disembarking the train, please remember to take all of your belongings with you. We thank you for traveling with us today and hope your trip was a pleasant one. She keeps listening to little boy. For those of you just boarding now, we ask you stow all of your hand luggage under your seat. Remember, there is no smoking on this train. We hope you will have a pleasant and relaxing journey with us today. The mother begins to smile, knowing that the lesson has sunk in. Finally, the child adds, And for those of you who are pissed about the two-hour delay, please see the fat bitch in the kitchen. <laughs> that was funny. I know it was. It I took don't... a lot of work for you to tell it, but it was funny. Yeah, it was a big lead-in, but we like swearing, so. That's right. Swearing's <laughs> funny. 
Thank yous. Once again, I'd like to thank Carl Olson, a.k.a. Ultra Kleistron, for the fantastic music and for spending a few moments with me at SakuraCon. It was a great time. Thanks, Carl. Also, I'd like to thank Drew and Brett Pierce, Jesse T. Cook, and Mike Bradish and John LaFlamboy for their time and passion in making such great films for us to show at the second Boneback Comedy of Horrors Film Fest. Again, you can get your tickets now at Bonehand.com. Please join us. We would love to see you there. Already we've heard about a bunch of friends who are coming out of town to join us for this event. Some people that Gordon and I haven't seen in years are showing up, and that's going to be really cool. Yeah. Our usual bullshit, of course. The show phone number is 425-296-6557. Or you can reach me via email at steve at bonehand.com. I've got new content on bonehand.com every Sunday, including the heavy half hour, which has a new app or is on the Cast Iron Ring app. It's a free app for your iPhone, so please download it and you can get your heavy metal fix anytime you like. If it's a Cast Iron Ring app, is it a crap? Don't say that, man. <laughs> John, I apologize for my co-host. I, he, it can't be helped. It cannot. And you can find my stuff, such as it is, MightyWombat.com, a new cartoon every week, generally crap. And you can follow my Twitter twitterings at Mighty underscore Wombat. My twitterings can be found at Bonehand, and we also have a Bonebat Twitter feed, if you would like to follow that, as well as a Bonebat Facebook group, which is where we are currently keeping all of the big news about the film festival, so keep an eye there as well. And thank you for listening. Of course, if you like what we do, we always appreciate it if you can please tell a friend. Our closing tune tonight, we're going to shift gears a little bit away from Mr. Ultra Klystron, and play the previously mentioned My Foot and Your Ass Are Getting Married from Mike Bradish and the Mole Man at Belmont Avenue crew. Once again, I am Steve. This is Gord. Have a good one. I do have a good one.
Wee-oh, wee-oh, doobie.